Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. I'm going to share something with you that I'm not quite sure how to process. Some of the people I've worked with are kind of invisible. You don't really see them. They operate out of sight and out of mind. They're like ghosts. And they're what today's speaker Mary Gray calls ghost workers. For instance, if I want to transcribe a speech, I can just click on a button on a website and voila, a beautifully clean transcript is delivered by one of the thousands of invisible workers hired by an online transcription company. And these aren't full-time, regular employees. They don't have benefits. They're not chatting at the water cooler with their coworkers. We don't necessarily see them every day, yet they're changing how the economy works. We are living through the tech-enabled unraveling of full-time employment itself. So citizens, governments, consumers, workers, and businesses need to broker a new social contract and safety net. That's Mary Gray, who you'll hear more from shortly. And she makes me wonder, what would this new social contract look like? And how do we develop a safety net? I'm Madhupa Akinola. This is TED Business. Today's talk is from Mary Gray, an anthropologist and senior principal researcher at Microsoft. She focuses on how technology changes the way we think about labor, identity, and human rights. At the height of the pandemic, when so many of us were feeling invisible, Mary gave a virtual TED Talk with some big ideas that'll change the way you think about what it means to have a job today. Throughout her talk, I'll jump in to break down what she shares with us. But first, a quick break. No matter who they are or what they do, companies want to give their employees all the support they need and deserve. Our sponsor, UKG, has HR and workforce management solutions that can give you the tools you'll need to help make your people, all of your people, feel like they belong. UKG, the cross-category leader in HR solutions. Visit UKG.com to learn more. If you like TED Business, check out Now What's Next, a podcast from Morgan Stanley, the sponsor of today's episode. Hosted by Sonari Glinton, Now What's Next helps make sense of life during and after the pandemic. Glinton meets with people who are looking for solutions to the cracks exposed by the pandemic. And with his decades of experience reporting on culture and the economy, he definitely shares some interesting stories from his guests. To learn more, subscribe to Now What's Next wherever you get your podcasts. So right now, the pandemic is throwing many workers out of stable nine-to-five office jobs into a dizzying world where they're working on projects whenever and wherever they can get a kid-free moment to connect to the internet. But for many, this is not really new, nor is it temporary. Instead, the pandemic is exposing and accelerating structural changes in our society that are 20 years in the making. More and more businesses are not using AI to fully automate. They're combining algorithms, application programming interfaces, and the internet. 
to contract work out, letting computation schedule, manage, ship, and deliver bill tasks that can be picked up by people surfing for work online 24-7 around the globe. So Mary mentions this term, Application Programming Interface, also known as API. But what is this? You know when you're hungry and you get on Uber Eats and 45 minutes later your meal is there? It's an API that links the delivery guy to the work. It's almost like the digital equivalent of a manager for the invisible worker. And COVID-19 has shown every business that it can meet at least some of its labor needs through these on-demand task-based work arrangements. We increasingly don't see or know the people behind the services that we take for granted, which makes us even more susceptible to ignoring their needs, inadvertently worsening their work conditions. And just in case you didn't know, this isn't a new thing. It's been happening for a while. And according to Mary, 60% of global employment could be converted into some form of on-demand gig work by 2055. A recent study of job skills and titles listed on LinkedIn suggested that more than 149 million new digital tech jobs are going to come online in the next five years alone. And the bulk of these are in information services, tasks like content review and moderation, telemedicine, text-based customer support, data analytics, and last-mile physical delivery of services from home care to food delivery are all part of this trend. And all are technically hard problems for full automation. They require keeping people in the loop to push AI along or to take over when AI falls short. These are not niche jobs that are going to go away when the pandemic passes or with the advancement of AI. Yet we in the United States have set no marker that says this is the baseline for how workers participating in a task-based market should be supported. The problem is, our society isn't set up for a workforce of free agents. We truly are living through a tech-enabled unraveling of full-time employment. But we haven't figured out how to make this kind of employment sustainable. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that our economy hinges on equipping every working adult with a set of essential benefits. Healthcare, sick leave, employment insurance, family leave, and continuing education. For most of the industrial era, we've treated those benefits as perks to recruit and retain full-time employees. We can't afford to do that anymore. The way forward is precisely being able to say, gosh, I actually want workers, all workers, no matter where they're working, no matter how many hours they put in, no matter what projects they pick up, I want them to have this baseline. You might think of it as You know, back in the day, we knew that we needed everybody to have universal education. There wasn't a business out there that thought, gosh, I don't want my workers to have some baseline of education. Well, the baseline has moved up. And I do feel incredibly hopeful because I think that's obvious to anybody listening to me right now and to many of the businesses that want new playing rules. They want to be told what are the ways we can move forward together because none of these companies can make this new reality on their own. The market is not going to solve this. This is a social policy need. And we've never had companies define work conditions on their own. We've always needed society to come together and say, what's our baseline? So Mary imagines a cost-sharing relationship between government and the private sector to create what she calls a landing pad of essential benefits. 
And so that landing pad is really starting from the very beginning, assuming that as a business, I want the worker I recruit to my project to come in the door with the basics to make sure every worker has health care, has sick leave, has employment insurance, not unemployment insurance, but employment insurance that assumes that people are always going to be between tasks at some point. And that's a good thing. So the landing pad is really about finding a way to give workers downtime that they aren't absorbing the costs of that downtime because the downtime is going to benefit every worker, every consumer when they come back to a task. The challenge is is not as complicated as we make it. It's much more of our mental map for what's the good job. It's the full-time employment position. That's no longer the good job. In fact, those are really hard to find in most of the, the world. So it's thinking about what would make every job dignified, equitable, sustainable. What does that look like? And we have the power to do that. We have the means to do that. And we now have an entire economy that needs that. So gig work itself isn't the problem. I mean, gig work can be a cheaper and more efficient way for businesses to scale up and down as they need. And for lots of workers, that can mean having control over your schedule in a way that you definitely wouldn't have with a regular job. At the same time, the psychological downsides to being an invisible worker can be huge. Ghost workers never meet any of their colleagues after work for drinks or in the elevator for a chat. Their tasks are often assigned by algorithms, and the work can be so transactional that it has the potential to be dehumanizing. Here's Mary again. So the information service work that we studied can isolate workers. There's no factory floor, no single employer of record, no benefits, no base pay or pay for being on call. No workers are able to collectively represent their interests, and they don't share a sense of professional identity that can build solidarity as it's been built in traditional labor movements. One of the things that I found um, fascinating was when we were doing this work, even though it's designed literally to keep people fairly separate and atomized to do tasks, the, the assumption by engineers is nobody needs to talk here. We found workers very quickly forming social connections, building peer relationships, mentoring each other, helping each other, literally texting each other to keep each other animated at work to keep to keep awake. For example, we had a group that we studied, they called themselves Team Genius, who would hang out in Skype and basically just chatter between projects. That kind of connection, that kind of solidarity is there. Workers create that for themselves. That is fundamental glue. That doesn't go away. We always bring our social selves to the work that we do. Work is incredibly social as much as it's productive and professionalizing. So the approach we have to take is to see that workers need colleagues. They need support. They need businesses that are responsive to them. And they also need businesses to be accountable no matter whether they're offering two minutes of their time or 20 hours a week. So there's nothing inherently bad about these jobs. It's that we don't value them. We could make these incredibly rich opportunities for the globe to be able to tap in and provide what it is that they want to do, what they excel at, or what they want to experiment with. 
provide a great deal of value to the businesses they're serving, the consumers who benefit from what they have to offer, but ultimately from the workers being able to move to the kinds of projects that really excite them and fit their lives. Like if we could give workers control over their schedules, opportunities to control what kinds of projects they work on, and the ability to connect with and collaborate with their peers, that would be a game changer. I really appreciated how Mary pulled back the curtain on so much of the invisible work that happens every day. Honestly, it wasn't until I listened to this talk that I realized I'd been participating in the ghost economy. Like a lot of academics, I sometimes use Amazon's Mechanical Turk Marketplace, also known as MTurk, to help with data collection. I've had hundreds of invisible workers complete experiments and surveys online for my research. They're just like Uber drivers or like freelance computer coders, or even like some therapists getting clients through APIs these days. My point is, ghost workers can be anyone from almost any profession. Few of them will ever climb a traditional career ladder. They don't go to company retreats. They don't get paid sick days. They may always have more uncertainty about their next paycheck, unlike regular nine-to-fivers. So my big takeaway, we're at a critical moment. And the question is, as a society, are we going to recognize that employment in 2021 is fundamentally different than it was a couple of decades ago? I'm not so sure, but if you want to learn more, check out Mary's book. It's called Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And it's co-written with Siddharth Suri. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Maria Luisa Tucker, researched by Cassie Brabaugh, and fact-checked by Eliza Solomon. Our mixer is Sam Baer, and special thanks to Kim Naderfane-Peterza, Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, and Colin Helms. I'm Madhupa Aganola, and I'll talk to you again next week. Click, pay, and download instantly. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Get your car bright, shiny, and clean at Tommy's Express Car Wash in Snellville. Stop by today to Tommy's Express Car Wash on the northeast corner of Oak Road and Scenic Highway North. Pull on up, roll on through on the Tommy Transporter Belt, and get a complete car wash in about three minutes for as low as seven bucks. Free vacuums and floor mat cleaners included, too. Join the Tommy Club and get unlimited car washes for an entire month, starting below $20. Tommy's Express Car Wash, open daily 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. to fit your busy schedule. Bring your car, SUV, and even your larger size pickups. Tommy's Express has you covered on the northeast corner of Oak Road and Scenic Highway North. Look for the free Tommy's Express app on your phone. Learn more anytime at Tommy's-Express.com. That's T-O-M-M-Y-S-Express.com. Or just stop by today, save time and money, and keep your car bright, shiny, and clean at Tommy's Express Car Wash on the northeast corner of Oak Road and Scenic Highway North in Snellville. Abraham, 
Jacob, David, and Solomon, all big heroes of faith in the Old Testament. You know what else they have in common? They all had multiple wives. So does that make polygamy all right in the eyes of God? That's what we're going to talk about today on Scripture Snippets. Welcome to Scripture Snippets, where we take pieces and crumbs from the bread of life and apply them to our life. So today we're going to be talking about uh, polygamy and what it says in the Bible, and I'm also going to talk about a couple other things, including homosexual marriage and transgenderism and what the Bible has to say about that, because it'll actually naturally come up in some of these verses that I have. Uh, But I had a listener, a faithful listener and a good friend, actually email me, uh, wanting to know about this topic. Um, He's been doing some really good study, and he noticed that. He noticed that uh, some of the Old Testament figures that are actually even in the Hall of Faith, as we call it in the book Hebrews, had multiple wives. And, uh, of course, we know of some of their cults out there uh, that had this as part of their system. Um, But he was always under the understanding that God meant for it to be a monogamous relationship. So he asked me to clear this up, if it was okay or if it wasn't okay. And I think that's where we get confused sometimes, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit too. Because we see these heroes of faith, and we automatically think that because they were heroes of faith, that it was okay. But we're going to show how that's not today, but I'm going to show how God used that. When people look at the Bible and see cases of polygamy, which means having multiple wives, if you didn't know, it means just having multiple wives, they are not distinguishing between what God commands of us and the history of how we've ultimately treated him. Um, You know, God commanded us, and, and, and he asked us not to do certain things. He made promises to us, um, but we also got to look on how we treated him. Because if we look at it in that perspective and we're honest with ourselves, the honest answer is this. Man has never been faithful to a faithful God. Man has never been faithful to a faithful God. God's the one who designed marriage. He's the one who invented marriage. Marriage is not, no matter what anyone says, marriage is not a man-made institution. It was the farthest thing from man's mind. And we can tell that from the current debauchery of society today. We can see that man's nature is not towards marriage. When you look at the modern day culture, especially for those of us that are in that age, the middle age group, even younger, the younger generation, marriage is no longer a goal, is no longer something that they want. In fact, some of them say that they will never get married. Let's look at how many broken marriages there are, and even couples that are living with each other outside of the sacred bond of marriage. And I'm not talking about just outside of the church. I'm talking those who take upon the mantle of Jesus Christ that are doing this as well. And so you have to understand that marriage was given to us by God. It's not a human institution. It's something that's holy. It's something that's treasured. And it's something that should be obeyed. God, in fact, gave the first woman to the first man. The woman was a gift from God, and we have to remember that. Men, we have to remember that. Women are not property. They're a gift from God. 
Hence, in our marriage relationships, we should always look at our partner as a gift from God himself. Could you imagine how much stronger our marriages would be if a man, if the husband would value his wife as, as a gift from God, as a precious gift that came from the hands of God himself, and vice versa, when a woman sees the man as a gift from God, and they fulfill their duties as set forth in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, it would be amazing. When Moses tells us about this, when he tells us about the whole marriage institution, he makes a comment in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and this is what he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So let me read that again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The singular is used in both instances. Hence, monogamy was and is God's standard for marriage. This would later be echoed by our Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus did also address the issue of homosexuality and transgenderism by quoting Old Testament scripture. It says, beginning in verse 4 in Matthew chapter 19, And he answered, now Jesus is answering the Pharisees here because they're questioning him on the issue of divorce. In verse 4 he says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Let me read that again for those in the back. Verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? period. Verse 5, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one, fle- one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, lot, let not man separate. So the Pharisees had asked Jesus about the issue of divorce, and Jesus reminded them of the gift and the sanctity of marriage that was created at the beginning. He is extremely specific in these passages so that there is no mistake as well. In verse 4, he quotes Genesis 1.27, emphasizing that God perfectly created mankind into two genders and two genders only. Notice it states male and female. There is no mistaking that. It was separated and it's been both quoted in Genesis and then again by Jesus Christ in Matthew. He follows by quoting the previous le- previously referenced verse that I gave of Genesis 2.24 by stating that a man, again in the masculine, will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The feminine pronoun is used in this instance, and it's done intentionally, meaning a male and female. Not homosexual relationships, no transgenderism, no non-binary stuff, male and female. So there seems to be this erroneous argument that's going around today that people try to defend, saying that Jesus Christ never spoke on the topic of homosexuality and and marriage amongst homosexuals and transgenderism. But however, if you read Matthew chapter 19, Jesus specifically did talk about this. So when we read the Bible, we see a recollection or divine history of God's relationship with humankind. These are relayed through covenants given by God to man. So a covenant is very much like a marriage. 
in which two parties agree to be devoted to each other, to be loyal, and to be faithful. We first see that type of relationship with Adam and Eve. Sometimes this is referred as the Edemic Covenant, where God promises to take care of them, to provide for them, to fellowship with them in eternal bliss, as long as they do not sin against him by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as we see, though, from the rest of the story, they become disloyal, they become selfish, and do not obey God. Therefore, they break the covenant, or in another way, when you look at it, they cheat on their relationship they had with God. Because of this, they plunge humanity into death, chaos, and evil. There are consequences to sin, and that consequence was death, as God had specifically stated, both physical and spiritual. Again, it was mankind, though, who broke this covenant and not God. God then makes a new covenant with Noah when he basically hits the reset button and starts again. And sometimes this is referred to as the Noahic covenant. But as we know, that too goes down the tubes in man's sinfulness shortly thereafter, after they got off the ark. Again, though, God kept his promises, but man decided to sin and betray the relationship they had with God. God, of course, does the same with Abraham and his people called Israel. We see the same through as we read the scriptures. We see a series of God delivering his people, keeping his promises, but then always his people sinning, betraying, and cheating on God with the idols of the nearby nations and not doing what they had promised. We see it consistently all throughout scripture. So, we see this up and down, and in fact, the events of Hosea illustrate the adulterous relationship that Israel had against God. God always likes to use the illustration of marriage when he discusses his loving relationship and commitment to his people. In the New Testament, we see big time that he refers to himself as the bridegroom and to the church, those who believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, as the bride. He's the bridegroom and the church is the bride. He used this instance with Israel as well in the book of Hosea. We see God have Hosea take Gomer, a known prostitute, as a wife. Gomer, who had disgraced herself publicly, had lost everything, and she was in a sea of debauchery, was raised, but she was raised to a high position, loved on by Hosea, and was given a ton of riches and everything one could ever dream of. So what did Gomer do when she had that? Of course, she cheated on Hosea. Just like we do when God bestows his blessings upon us. We cheat on him. We betray him. We think it's not good enough and we go looking for a pasture elsewhere. This is what Gomer did and that's what the city, the country of Israel did. The people of Israel many times. She cheated. She prostituted herself among the masses again. And she was caught. When Gomer was then being sold again on the public block to be disgraced, to live a life of misery, and to be sold again into sexual slavery, Hosea steps up, and he literally gives everything he has, paid everything he had, every little bit, just so he could redeem her and have her back. Does that sound familiar? That's the same thing that God did for us by sending his son Jesus Christ. Even though we had cheated on him, even though we had constantly betrayed him and not followed his word, he bought us back. So what's this have to do with polygamy? Why am I bringing all this up? 
And what does this have to do with the polygamous relationships that we, I was talking about, even by some of the most well-known heroes like Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon? What's this have to do with them? What I mentioned is that throughout the pages of the Bible, we see how man does not remain faithful to God and to his leading, to his commands, to what he asks and to his promises. We see how they refuse to accept his teachings, and because of that, they suffer from it. Whenever man decides to sin, there's always negative consequences. Sin literally destroys. God was not lying to us when he said that sin brings death and sin destroys. It does completely. And there's always consequences of sin. So this is not done as some sort of plot line or something to keep us interested in the story. This is done strictly so we can have the examples and that we may learn from them. God purposely showed the failures of these great men and women to us so we can learn by them. Not so we can say, oh, look, they were great men, so let's adapt what they did and live exactly like them. No. The pages of Scripture say that we are to only emulate one person and one person only, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life. His is the life that we should try to lead. We are not to copy Moses, we are not to copy David, we're not to copy Solomon, we're not to copy any of them. Now, can we adapt some of their godly traits into our lives? Absolutely. And we have their examples there as well. But we have to also understand that they were human as us, and those stories should encourage us so that when we sin in our life, that we know we have a God who loves us and who redeems us and who will still use us just like he did them. But just because they participated in polygamy does not make that correct. So we have this as an example. Again, let me go back to one of them. God promised Abraham in his covenant with him that he would make Abraham a great and mighty nation. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. That your, your, your descendants are going to be innumerable. But Abraham became impatient with God just like we do many times, and his timing. So what he do? He tried to rush things, and he sinned against God by taking matters into his own hands. He took Hagar, who was Sarah's maidservant, as an additional wife and a surrogate mother for his child. His wife, his monogamous wife, which was instituted by God, was Sarah. He was supposed to have no other partner, but he sinned, and took Hagar, both him and Sarah both, to because they thought that they could advance God's plan instead of waiting on his timing, and they sinned. So what was the result of this polygamous relationship? What was the result of this sin? Well, Sarah became jealous of Hagar, which is a big thing that we see in the, in the, in the, in the in all throughout Scripture of a polygamous relationship. So Sarah became jealous of Hagar and threatened Abraham to the point that he actually cast Hagar away and his own son Ishmael with very little provisions. I mean, he did not give them much, just basically kicked them out and led them away. Absolutely sinful. He was unloving completely. However, God gave a promise to Hagar that he would bless Ishmael as well, making his offspring a mighty nation. So hence, we have the Arab population that we see today, because God kept his promise while Abraham did not, and that sin caused drastic consequences. When we look at Jacob, Jacob had two wives, 
So while that was not the original intent, because Jacob originally just wanted to have Rachel, it did happen. So was that a good situation? Absolutely not. If you read the pages in the chapter after, you see a complete history of strife between Rachel and Leah. They were consistently jealous of each other. There was hatred between the two up to the point of their death. And this this whole jealousy thing and this whole hatred thing, this whole strife between them, passed on with their children because you saw jealousy amongst their children, especially when they approached Joseph. So this, this went on. So they did not honor God's plan for marriage, and therefore disaster occurred. So again, we see consequences of sin. In the book of Judges, we read where some of the judges had many wives, but they only did this because deep down they aspired to become kings. They wanted to become something greater than they were, and that was their downfall. In fact, we know that it was mainly kings that would have multiple wives because of the book of Judges. So the Bible suggests to us that the majority of the culture then did obey God's law and only had one wife, as was ordained by him. And only those with selfish desires, like those who aspired to be more, were the ones with multiple wives. And again, we saw the consequences and penalty of the sin, because if you read the book of Judges, you see these series of victories when the men of God were faithful, and you see these, and women, because Deborah, and then you see the failures of when they were not, and the, and the people of Israel turned against, turned to other gods. The Bible again relates to us that when you go against God's ordinance, that becomes nothing but trouble. Look at the life of David. David, who had many wives, still wasn't satisfied by that. Due to his covetousness and his greed, he betrayed and murdered his most loyal subject, Uriah the Hittite. And he had an adulterous affair with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and took her as a wife. He murdered Uriah, had an adulterous affair with his wife. Before making making Bathsheba his wife, he had an adulterous affair because, remember, he was a married man and she was a married woman. And then, after he had killed Uriah and had blood on his hands, he took her as a wife. And Bathsheba knowingly knew this as well. And what happened because of all this? And remember, David had multiple wives. He was not faithful. Nathan the prophet comes, and he uses this parable. Nathan uses a parable. He approaches David, and he starts talking about a man who owned thousands of sheep. And then, of course, this is supposed to be a mirror image of David, and David having as many wives. And he talks about another man who only owned one lamb, a poor man who only owned one lamb. And that man, man that, that poor man, cherished that one little lamb that he had with everything. And that was in reference to Uriah, and, and as in Bathsheba being an example of a lamb. And it talks about how uh, there had to be this time of hospita- hospitality given to where uh, a lamb needed to be Uh, taken away. And we see instead of this man who had many sheep, who had many to spare, he didn't take one of his own. Instead, he stole the one sheep from the poor man who had one. And what happens? David gets riled up 
David becomes outraged, and he says, this man, he should pay with his own life for doing that wrong to that man. And that's when Nathan makes a strong point, and he makes the proclamation in front of all the royal court, and he points to David, and he says, you are the man. David falls under the judgment of God because of this relationship, because of his adultery, because of his polygamy, because of his covetousness, because of his greed, because of the murder. He loses his future son with Bathsheba. And from that point on, David is constantly at a time of war. David, who always wanted to build a house for God, is denied that right, only for it to be passed on to his son. And then we see where his son plots against him in Absalom. So we see the consequence of sin again. So just because these glorif- these men, uh, these faithful men of God, who did great and wonderful things for God and upheld the things for God, we, we, we see as well that they are just like us in the fact that they sin as well. Now, because they sin, that does not justify that sin. And that's where we fall short sometimes. We think that just because the Scripture tells us that these men do these things, that that becomes the truth. No. They failed. God mentioned their failures so we can understand their failures and learn from them. And also to give us hope. Because God reminds us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So just because David had it was in a polygamous relationship, just because Solomon was in a polygamous relationship, just because Abraham and, and Jacob and all these had multiple wives does not give us the right to. Because God said in the very, very beginning that a man takes a wife, singular. Polygamy is not a good thing, and it's not a thing ordained by God. Just because we see that some of these leaders did it during the times does not validate it, nor elude that God approves of it. Instead, God used their sinfulness and the failures of these mighty men to show us that no one is immune from the effects of sin and to show us the gravity of sin in our lives and the consequences of it, because man, when they fell, they fell. So whenever these questions come up, and they usually come from unbelievers, because they try to point and say, look, he approved of polygamy. We shouldn't. We should ask them the question, have you really read the Bible? To people who ask this, have them go back to the Bible and read it. Point them to what I just told you, and have it as a whole. We need to read the Bible in whole. And not just look at little snippets and just go from there. Yeah, funny, I use scripture snippets. But that's what it is. All these snippets complete a whole. The Old Testament saints are great examples of faith. But they were not necessarily great examples of morality. Just like us. It shows our frailty and our tendency to sin. It shows how God can deliver us, though, and rescue us. It shows how God can and will use us, and it showed the need for a Savior. The law could not save. The law could not save Moses. The law could not save Abraham. The law could not save any of these great men of faith. What saved them was the faith that the faith they had in the Son of God, in the promised Messiah. That's echoed in Hebrews. That's what saved them. Because they could not keep the moral code, just like we can't. And just because we see that these great men of God did these bad things doesn't give us a license to do it. 
So when we see this sinful behavior by men of renown in the scripture, we should not use that as a source of validation. Instead, we need to look at it as a voice of caution. We need to knock down these erroneous arguments saying that the Bible commended polygamy. It did not. It spoke out against it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 again, and then Jesus Christ himself again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. And not only did Jesus condemn polygamy, he condemned homosexual marriage. He condemned transgenderism because it's specific. Verse 4, again, I want to read this and finish off with this because we have a huge church in our area here in northern Kentucky that is refusing to take a stand against this when it's laid out in Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? There's no question about it. Now, let me let me qualify this. Does this mean... Does this give me a right to hate people? To, to, is, does this give me a right to hate transgender people? Does this give me a right to speak mean to them? No, it does not. In fact, that's the opposite of Christianity. We should love them. And because we love them, we share the message of hope and we warn them saying, do not live this lifestyle for it's outside of the will of God. And what happens when you're outside of the will of God? Well, what did I just say? You have disaster after disaster after disaster. There's always consequences to sin. Always. You may not see them right away, but you will definitely see them. And please don't let that day be at the judgment seat of God when he will hold all men accountable because he's the ultimate lawgiver. There is most definitely a heaven, and there is most definitely a hell. And if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you do not believe in the Son Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. It's clear cut. And I say that not because... I feel myself as a righteous person because I don't. I'm far from it. Man, I've made a ton of mistakes. A million mistakes. I am by no far. I, in fact, I tell people quite often that Paul in the New Testament called himself the chief of sinners. I think I can give Paul a very good run for that title when I look back at my life. I've got wonderful friends that I love and I cherish and I care for that are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. I love them. But you know what all them else have in common? They know what I believe. They know what I believe and they respect me and they love me because I've never hindered from telling them what I believe and that I care for them, that I'll always be there to help them, but I care for them so much I want to warn them. And I let them know what I believe and what I hold strong and what I know is the truth. I let them know in a loving way. Now, what they do with it is up to them. Just as Jesus Christ preached, he preached to the Pharisees. Jesus Christ was God. He had the full power of God. He was omnipotent. 
if God wanted to, he could reprogram us completely then and there, but he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want robots. He wants caring, genuine, loving people. Jesus let people make the choice. Our job is to tell the truth in love. And that's what I'm doing here, and that's what we need to continue to do. So don't preach a message of hate. Preach a message of love, but preach a message of truth. Because if you don't preach a message of truth, then it's not love. Verse 4 again, Matthew chapter 19, And he answered, and he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And this is Jesus speaking. Yes, he's quoting Old Testament scripture, but Jesus is quoting Old Testament. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, one man, one woman, and the two shall become flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then Jesus talks about the sanctity of marriage, how we shouldn't be quick to divorce. That save for the outside of adultery, we should stick it out. That's a foreign idea today, too. And again, this isn't held by the whole church. My friends, these are strong words, but these are true words. Take them, apply them to your life. Thank you for listening. I pray that this was a blessing. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook. And I'll see you again in the next podcast. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. At Care.com, you can find trusted and flexible sitters to help manage your family's ever-changing schedule. Care.com can even help you out with housekeepers, dog walkers, senior caregivers, and more. So you can find care for all you love. And 100% of caregivers who use Care.com have been background checked with CareCheck, a key first step in hiring confidently. To get the help you need to make it all work, sign up now and find a great sitter at Care.com. There's no better feeling than getting a great deal. Like a hotel room upgrade or a free car wash with every tank of gas. Maybe unlimited chips and salsa with your burrito. And now, as an AT&T wireless customer, you can get an exclusive deal on a super fast internet experience with AT&T Fiber. Get consistently fast speed, even during peak times, and a great deal with AT&T Fiber. Learn more at att.com slash fiber offer. Limited availability in select areas based on wired connection to gateway. Restrictions apply. episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You are listening to the Heartbeat of Kitsap, powered by the Silverdale Chamber of Commerce. Welcome for those of us who are just joining us. We are Uplift Kitsap, the virtual Kitsap business forum. Our mission is to engage in meaningful dialogue and stimulate thinking with our business community on relevant topics so that collectively we grow a healthy Kitsap economy. 
We started out as the Kitsap Business Forum, powered by the Silverdale Chamber of Commerce. We used to meet once a month. And starting in September, we are back live on the second Tuesday of every month. And we will be at the New Life Training Center in Silverdale starting the second Tuesday of September. And super excited to announce that Shannon Bruce is going to be our speaker. And she was one of the very original founders of the Kitsap Business Forum. So it feels like a nice, sweet homecoming. Uh, So keep looking for some details on that. But it will be on that second Tuesday. So you can save the date for yourself. Thanks to everyone that's kept us going and keeps us going. Uh, Audibly Addicted, Rick Cox is on here. He turns all of these into our podcast for us. Myself at Express Employment Professionals, April Idy, Onafray from Kitsap Bank, uh, Serve Pro of Kitsap County. I didn't see if uh, Kathleen came on or not. Port Madison Enterprises, Silverdale Chamber of Commerce, Imprezi Marketing, B&B Auto Repair, and the Global Leadership Summit. So thank you, thank you all for taking care of us. Our steering committee are the ones that find all the speakers, do all the marketing, put everything together for us. So I'm Crystal Thomas. I'm your chair. We have April, who I just introduced. She's with Kitsap Bank. Angela Henderson, Amy Lacker Pickering, David Emmons, Joel Baxter, Kathleen Arndt, and Kathleen Gordon. Thanks, team. You're amazing. Upcoming events next Tuesday. So we have our new schedule. So our events will now be on the 2nd. And the third Tuesdays of every month, we're going to keep our Uplift Kits up once a month. So we're on Zoom for those who can't make that early 730 in the morning live. Uh, We're going to keep this one and keep that podcast going as well. So next week on the 20th, we'll still be on Zoom. And that will be with Lenny Rivera on how to embrace the future workplace and talking about hybrid workplace and all of that fun stuff and how to bring everyone back or not bring everyone back all of that. Then August 10th, we'll have Anna Choi back, who's been on here before, on creating and maintaining healthy boundaries. Uh, August 17th, we don't have a speaker yet. And then September 14th, voila, our first live Kitsap Business Forum. And then from September on, we'll have the Kitsap Business Forum on that second Tuesday. And then the third Tuesday, we'll be back on Zoom. And in September 21st, we have Matt, who's on here, is going to be doing the twilight of your career. And I only gave you one T in your name today. You're you're just fancy today, so it's fine. <laughs> You can always find us on SilverdaleChamber.com or the Chamber Facebook page, KitsapBusinessForum.com to register and find out upcoming events. And then HeartbeatOfKitsapPodcast.com is where you will find all of our past episodes and upcoming episodes. And I do believe I'm up to date on the website. Yay me! Today we have what business owners need to know about changes in tax laws with Johnny Hawkins and my little thing is covered up there. There we go. Uh, Johnny is a CPA, is a partner at Olympic Tax and Business Consulting. He is a highly skilled accountant who often receives great reviews from his clients. Johnny specializes in tax and accounting services for small to medium-sized businesses. He also has lots of experience working with not-for-profit entities. Johnny began his full-time career in public accounting in 2006 after graduating in the top 10% of his class from the University of Washington, where he majored in accounting and minored in applied computing. I didn't know that. And Johnny is a member of the Washington Society of Certified Public Accountants and a certified QuickBooks Pro Advisor. He's been a guest lecturer at the University of Washington, and we're super excited to have him here with us today. Thanks, Johnny. 
All right, thanks. So the I think the the purpose of, of this is just going to be to highlight some of the key provisions that have happened and and then go over some of the, the various parts of the key provisions. Um, we're not going to do a real deep dive into any of it. I just kind of want to highlight things that affect the most people. And then the purpose of that being to, you know, it, essentially just make you guys aware. Maybe, maybe at some point we touch on something that you're like, oh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't heard of that one. Um, or, or, you know, maybe that'll apply to me and, and it'll basically just maybe give you guys some info to where you, you might be able to dig deeper and find something that, that helps you out. Um, over the last three years, we've had an insane amount of tax law. You know, going back to 2018, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and and that was the most tax law change we've had in a single year um, ever since 1986. You know, the last time we had sweeping tax law reform like that was under Reagan, um, and and you know there was massive changes in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, so we saw that come through in 18 and. And those laws are primarily temporary. So, so, you know, it's, it's always shifting and, and I won't dive in too much into that, but I've actually given lectures and, and done classes on, on that act in, in its, you know, just in itself, but that's old news compared to, compared to now. I mean, over the last 15 months, 19, we didn't have a whole heck of a lot of change. But then towards the tail end of 19 and then all the way up till now, we've had a massive amount of change again, most of it related to the pandemic. Um, but, you know, we've had about five different tax acts come through just in the last 15 months. And, and that's an enormous amount. I mean, I, I deal with CPAs and there's there's been items that come across that, you know, I've had actual CPAs come up and be like, oh, have you heard of this one? Oh yeah, that was part of that act, you know, back in March of 2020. Crap, I never even heard of that, you know. Um, it, it's just been coming in hot and heavy. So, you know, we've had over over just the last 15 months, we've had the the Taxpayer Certainty and Disaster Relief Act of 2019. Uh, we had the setting up every community, setting every community up. For Retirement Enhancement Act, which they called the Secure Act, uh, Congress really digs their acronyms when they do these tax law changes. Um, we had the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Uh, we had the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, which you know some of you might have heard of that. It was called the CARES Act, and and then most recently we've had that American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And then in addition to that, we also have upcoming changes, you know, because we've had all, we've, we've dished out all the money and now, now the, the question becomes, how do we pay for all this, you know, and, and we'll dive into some of that. And towards the end here, I'll, I'll go over what some of the proposed changes are. So 
we we can do Q and A towards the end, but you know if, if there's something that you you have a burning question on, just feel free to jump in and and we can we can hit questions as we go. Um, so some of the key provisions of these acts, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother telling you which which provision went with which which act. That's that's a little too much nerdery for this. You know, we'll just kind of go over what what was involved. Um, you know, the biggest one that affected the most people was, was those stimulus payments, you know, or economic impact payments is what they're actually called, but everybody just refers to them as the stimulus payments. So, you know, there's, there's been three of them thus far. The, the first two were 2020 tax items, meaning, you know, we dealt with the first two on the 2020 tax returns. And then that third one that came through in March of 2021 is going to be a 2021 tax item. So we'll deal with that one next year. Um, most people, you know, it, it depends. There's lots of ifs and buts that feed into all three of these. But for, for the most part, you know, it, it would phase out if, if you're a single tax filer at making more than 75,000. And then if you were a joint filers, it would start to phase out at, at 150,000. And so there was a little bit of wiggle room there for manipulation of those, you know, um, it, because if they didn't have a certain tax return on file, like your 2020 or your 2019, then they would go by your 2018 if they didn't have the 2019 on file. And so the game that some people would play is, okay, well, I didn't make that much money in 18, so I'm gonna wait to file my 19, and that way I can get the first stimulus payment. And then the same thing with number two, you know, I, I, I made too much for 2020, but my 19 income was down, so I'm gonna wait until I get my second round stimulus, then I'll file the 2020. And, and people were doing that a long way, and it wasn't until late December of 2020 that we actually knew the answer of, well, are we going to have to pay this back? And around December 27th, the Congress kind of clarified some of this stuff that was happening, um, not around, on December 27th. Um, and, and that's when they gave us the great news that, you know, they were going to do this always in the taxpayers' favors. And so if you received the money and based on your 2020 income, you shouldn't have actually gotten it, then then you basically got to take the money and run, you know? Um, but if you didn't get the money and based on 2020 income, you know, let's reverse that. Let's say your 19 income was higher and 2020 was lower, then you could actually fill out a worksheet and claim the difference on the 2020 tax returns, you know? And this was done so quickly. I'm sure you guys can imagine, you know, what a mess that created because, there's there's all kinds of instances that we've seen where the the IRS records will reflect. I actually just wrote a letter this morning on on this exact case. Um, the IRS will reflect that hey, we sent you stimulus payment number two, and the the client you know can go through their banking records, et cetera, and verify no, I never actually received that deposit. I received number one, I received number three, but I never received number for whatever reason. And so clearing that up, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes to clear those up. You know, thus far, what we've done is sent 
if the client is on direct deposit, we send proof by sending copies of the bank statements for the applicable period and, and basically just show, look, there's no deposit here for from Department of Treasury, you know, change it and accept the return as, as filed. But how long it'll take until people actually get their hands on, on those missed stimulus checks is anybody's guess at this point. Um, I'm assuming it will be months and months because right now the IRS is insanely backed up. I mean, routine transactions are taking months to process. There might be some people in in the in the group today that filed their return back in, in March and still haven't received their refunds. And the IRS has actually issued public statements saying, you know what, we're real busy right now. Um, and you know, between the IRS was in charge of issuing all three of these statements, you know, the stimulus payments. Uh, they changed the law in March, and we'll talk about this a little more down the road, but they changed the law in March, making the first 10200 of unemployment compensation non-taxable. Well, by that time, millions of tax returns had already been filed. And so Congress said, you know, instead of, instead of making the taxpayers amend those returns, we're going to put it on the IRS to just figure it out and send them some money back. So, so that's huge. And then we'll talk about this more down the road as well, but they're they're going to send out fifty percent of the new advanced child tax credit as as monthly payments beginning this month, and so you know they've got to figure out and send millions and millions, hundreds of millions of taxpayers, you know, monthly payments, and the IRS has to figure that out and set it up, and then you add in you know the fact that they were short staffed before coronavirus ever hit, and. Uh, it's kind of the perfect storm. I mean, the IRS has two speeds, slow and stop. And, you know, right now it's, it's extremely slow. They're, they're on the slow speed grinding the gears. So that's, that's all I'm going to go over on the stimulus is, is just be aware that stimulus number three will be dealt with on your 2021 returns. And if you didn't receive the full amount that you should have, uh, a real common scenario is if you had a kid born during the year and they based it on your 19 return and then you had a kid born in 2020, you can claim the extra amount for the new kiddo on the 2020 return. So if you filed and you did not do that, you might want to amend the return and, and get some money. If you received full stimulus and shouldn't have, awesome. The next big one was the, the paycheck protection loans. I'm sure April and Aaron are super sick of talking about these. Um, but, but that was, that was a huge program for business owners. Um, they were basically just short-term loan programs designed to keep people employed during the pandemic. You know, um, it was, it was basically Congress kind of throwing the money out to the business owners directly rather than overwhelming the state unemployment systems, which were, overwhelmed regardless. Um, there was a couple different rounds of it, PPP number one being the easiest to get. And then, you know, it was it was constantly evolving as we went. And, you know, the, the first couple of rounds of the money just went like that. And, and then I believe they're fully used up. I know when I looked last time, as of May 31st, there was only about maybe 13 billion in. April shaking her head, it's all done. So, so if you got it, awesome. If you didn't, you know, 
it's gone. Uh, the best thing about that was Congress in December of 2020 said, you know what, we're going to let you have your cake and eat it too. We're going to make it non-taxable on the forgiveness. Typically, when you have debt forgiven, it's going to be taxable income to you. Um, and then in addition to that, they, they allowed taxpayers to double dip, meaning that you still got to expense the, the payroll expenses that you you didn't take with with the the ppp so you got to take the full amount of, of your w2 wages that you paid along with the ppp um the basics of it you know there's ifs and buts for all of it the the answer to every tax question you've ever asked is it depends by the way um on this one it depended on what you spent the money on and how long you took to to spend it uh, basically though you had about 24 weeks to to spend 60 percent on eligible payroll expenses. And then after that, you, you can spend the other 40% on, on, you know, rent and basically just eligible business expenses. There was a little laundry list of what you could spend that money on. Um, we won't, we won't spend too much more time on that given the fact that the program's kind of done. So, Whoever got it, great. Um, the only other thing I would add to that is how you do your forgiveness application might play into whether or not you qualify for the full amount of employee retention credit, um, which for some people, it's just kind of too bad, so sad, because um, I'll talk a little more about the employee retention credit here in just a bit, but we didn't really care at first because at the start of the employee retention credits, it was, well, if you have PPP, then you can't also apply for this. And it wasn't until December 2020 that Congress changed their mind and said, never mind, if you meet a certain set of circumstances, you can apply for both. And, and you kind of have to get the planets to align on that. But we've actually got huge refunds for, for clients that that applies to. Um, the other big SBA program that was going was the economic injury disaster loans. Now, these aren't forgivable. I'll actually asterisk next to that. The first 10000 of it is a forgivable grant, um, and that's, that's non-taxable as well. But the rest of it boils down into a, a 30-year low-interest loan, um, the low interest being 3.75% for businesses and I think it's another point under that for nonprofits. Um, you could you could take out up to five hundred thousand on those programs, and and there's there's some limitations on on the use of the proceeds. Like you couldn't take out an EIDL loan and and pay it as owner distributions. You couldn't use it to service other debt. You had to use it for like operating expenses. Um, you could use it to service short term debt, but not not like long-term mortgages, things like that. Um, I believe that one's actually still open, but the, they've, as these things have gone, they've added more and more restrictions. I think if memory serves to, to get the EIDL currently, you have to have your business in a low-income area. Uh, you have to have less than 300 employees. And I think there had to be like a 30% drop in income. I could be wrong about that. 
I'm pretty sure that's that, that was the hoop you had to jump through for ongoing EIDL loans. But overall, it was a pretty good deal. I mean, you know, if you figure 3.75%, you know, if you took out a $150,000 loan, that means your monthly payments on that was going to be about 750 bucks, something like that. So, you know, pretty, pretty easily serviceable. Uh, there was tons of changes on the individual sides. We'll, we'll jump back more into employer programs too, but on the individual side, some of the things that they did was they, they changed the charitable contributions. So there was, there was a little, a little change that said, you know, if you take the standard deduction on your tax return, um, they added in a $300 above the line charitable deduction for for people that don't itemize their deductions. All right, fine, we'll take it. It's it's really not that exciting. I mean, for most people's tax rate, it's it boils down to like 50, 60 bucks, you know, but it's better than a stick in the eye, I guess. Um, and then a little more exciting on on the individual side is if if you're loaded and you and you do itemize your deductions, they raise it to where you give up to sixty percent of your AGI to charity. Um, you don't really see that too often, but every now and again, you'll have somebody that's exceedingly generous. Um, and then to help stimulate the economy, they they raise the charitable contributions that corporations could take from 10% of taxable income to 25%. And, and so hopefully that'll spark, you know, more charitable programs through the corporations and, and put some money out into the nonprofits as well. Uh, another change that they did as part of the Secures Act uh, back in early 2020 was they, they raised the required minimum distribution age for retirees um, from age 70 and a half up to 72. So, so you now have a couple more years before you got to take your RMDs. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, required minimum distributions, we call them RMDs. That's, that's when you feed into like an, a traditional IRA or a 401k and, you know, it grows tax deferred. Well, eventually the government says enough's enough. We want our tax money back. And, and so you have to start taking it. And, and the required minimum distribution, you, you take the ending account value and divide it by roughly 27, and that'll get you the napkin map on what your RMD should be. Um, there's all kinds of rules that go into that, but you know, it was, it was basically really good into the taxpayers' favors that they, they've raised that up to age 72. Um, and then another thing that they did is in, in 2020, they said you don't have to take a required minimum distribution for 2020. And, you know, that was, that was kind of nice because some people don't really don't need the money to live. And, and so it was a way to manipulate taxable income downward for a lot of people. Or if, if you're of RMD age, it was a great year to do some Roth conversions because you didn't have to do the RMD. So, so we did a lot of Roth conversions last year. Um, the other thing is it, with, with retirement distributions is there was a couple other nice things that, that the CARES Act brought. And the CARES Act actually made it to where it was possible for those affected by COVID um, and, and affected meaning you, know, you had to have some sort of real 
hardship due to COVID, you know, uh, furloughed from work for, for X amount of time, had to take time off work to care for somebody, had COVID yourself, you know, something like that. It couldn't just be like, well, I don't like COVID, but I want to pull from my retirement plan. Um, and, and so it, it allowed people to take up to $100,000 out of their retirement plans um, penalty-free. Now, now that doesn't get you out of the tax. You still got to pay the, the ordinary tax rate on it, but it gets you out of that 10% penalty. So, so they quit rubbing salt in the wound on those distributions. And then to make it even sweeter, they, they allowed it to where you can, you can file a certain set of forms and split the pain of paying that tax over three years instead of the single year. And, and so that was a good opportunity for some people to make ends meet over the year. Um, and then there was another lesser known thing with retirement distributions that they did last year. And, and they actually made a little provision saying that you could pull up to $5,000 out of your retirement plans to pay for births and adoptions. And, and that was penalty free. And I, I don't think I had anyone do that one. It was, it was pretty obscure. You didn't hear much about it because it's just kind of so much has happened. A lot of people didn't, weren't even aware that it existed. Um, there was a lot of extender provisions. Extender provisions means stuff was set to expire as of 2020. And, and Congress does a lot of kicking the can down the road. You know, um, we don't want to do it with it this year. So we're just going to, we're going to extend it for one more year. Um, uh, and, and sometimes it just winds up being permanent code, you know, on these temporary ones, you know, the child tax credit was actually a, a temporary provision. Here we are like 30 plus years later and, and, and we still got it. So in fact, they just raised it. Um, and Johnny, so, there, so is a, there is a uh, question in the chat about the child care tax law since you're on that. Oh. Um, is there new child tax extra money coming and what income level disqualifies families? Yeah. Yeah. There is a new child tax credit. Um, so as of 2021, they've expanded it and, and it's now tiered. It's not the same amount for each kid. And of course they do this the year my kid turns 17, you know, like it never works out for old Johnny, but so, so now they they've made the child tax credit. So previously the child tax credit used to be like below 2000. And then in 2018, they raised it up to 200, 2000. And, and it used to phase out pretty early, like you made over 110, it was gone. Um, in 2018, as part of the tax cuts and jobs act, they raised it up to 400,000. Um, and then for 2021, they, increase the credit but then they brought down that phase out so it'll apply to less people it's it's pretty similar to the stimulus meaning it starts to phase out for a married couple at 150,000 and and it starts to phase out for individual filers at 75,000 and then if you claim head of household i believe it phases out somewhere in the 90s like 98,000 something like that um and so I think it's fully gone once you get up around like 180, 190. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but 
the the way it'll work is is essentially like this if you if you have a child that's age six up to age 17 you'll get three thousand bucks per kid if you have little ones that are under age six they'll give you an extra 600 bucks so it'll be three thousand six hundred and then to make it a complete confusing mess um, the irs decided that they're going to send out 50% of those advanced credits as, as monthly payments beginning July 15th. So if you're, if you're set up for direct deposit on your tax return, you should start seeing monthly payments coming in at, as soon as, you know, Thursday. Uh, you know, so, so that'll be pretty nice payments for people, but you know, it comes with an asterisk next to it. You got to be careful because this isn't going to be like the stimulus. If you receive this money and you weren't supposed to, then then you're you're going to want to opt out of it. Um, also, if if you're on direct deposit and and your bank account info has changed since you filed your tax return, you're going to want to update that. Otherwise, it's gonna it's gonna jump back. Uh, Rick, no, no pets, not since 1986. Um, 1986, a little bit of obscure tax law for you, was the first year that Congress ever said, you know what, maybe we should ask for like proof of a dependent, you know, like a social security number. And and if you look at the statistics, there's a group that puts together statistics for the IRS. Um, the the amount of dependents claimed on on returns 1985 and prior versus 1986, it dropped by like millions. Um, so, so yeah, you can't put FIDO on there since the eighties. Um, so yeah, going back to the, the current credit, you know, the advance payments are nice, but if you think your income is going to be over 150,000 where you're going to be in that phase out, I would recommend going on to the IRS website. There's there within the IRS website, which is irs.gov. Um, there's going to be a link for the advanced child tax credit portal. Um, that's where you can actually set up your info. You can adjust your bank account info, or if you choose, you can actually opt out of those monthly payments. People that should opt out of those monthly payments are going to be, um, like divorce cases. So, you know, lots of people switch off which kids they're claiming each year. You know, um, you get divorced, you claim the kid in the odd years, I claim the kid in the even years. Um, well, if you claim the kid in 19, but you're not supposed to in 20, they're going to give you that advanced credit each month. You're going to be like, right on, you know, I got some money. And then when you come and get your taxes done, I'm going to tell you, you have to pay it all back and it's going to bum out your day. So you're probably better off just opting out now and, and not taking the money. Um, if, if your bank account info has changed, you want to get that updated. Otherwise, they're going to mail you paper checks, you know, and, and the mail system isn't the best these days. So, so probably better to get it going direct deposit, but get that updated. If you update it now, you'll, it, it won't take effect until the August payment. So the, the July payment will either go to the old bank account or, or go, you know, to the, it'll, if, if it tries to go to the old bank account, the old bank account doesn't exist. 
it'll it'll bounce to a paper check and they'll mail it to you. So keep an eye on your mail. Johnny, there was another question. What was the limit income for married head of household with three kids to qualify? Uh, you can't file head of household if you're married. Let's let's make that clear. Uh, if you're married, it's married filing joint or married filings separate only. Um, head of household is for single taxpayers with kids. But if that applies to you, uh, I'm not sure of the income limitation off the top of my head. I believe it's $98,500. Um, I'm not 100%. You can email me and I'll look it up and, and give you the real phase outs on it. Let's see here. Um, is there any other stuff on the on the new child tax credit or are we ready to move on? Okay. So so going back real quick on, on those extender provisions, uh, you know, they they extended out the exclusion on discharge of debt income on primary residences. Um, and that that actually goes all the way back to 2009. We've been we've been kicking that can down the road for quite a while, you know, since the housing market crash. But essentially, if your house gets foreclosed on, hopefully that's not anyone in the audience today. Um, but when you have debt discharged, they will they will actually make you pick it up as income. You know, that's that's the worst case scenario. You got to pay tax on on you know the debt you couldn't afford to pay to begin with. But on primary residences for the last about 11 years or so, we've been able to not have to pick that up as taxable income. Um, they also extended out the deduction for mortgage insurance through 2020. So for those of you that itemize and, and take your mortgage interest, if you're making those PMI payments, you know, you could take those up again in 2020. I don't know if they'll they'll extend it to 2021 or beyond. In 2020, they also did an extension of the non-business energy credit. So if you did uh, energy efficient windows or furnace or something like that, you know, there's some tax credits you can get on those. It's not super exciting, but you know, it's a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there, depending on what you did. Um, and, and they also extended out the floor on medical expenses. So medical expenses for those to be deductible um, for your out-of-pocket medical, they, they take your adjusted gross income and multiply that by a certain percentage. And that's the amount that's disallowed right off the top. Uh, up until 2020, that rate is 7.5%. As of 2021, it's supposed to jump up to 10%. It's been supposed to jump up to 10% for the last four years, but, but they keep keeping it at 7.5. Um, I don't know. I mean, 7.5 is still a lot. You know, you figure if you're making a hundred thousand dollars, the first 7,500 is disallowed. So if, if you can't deduct your medical, you know, let's call that a good problem to have. Um, let's see here. Uh, going on to the American rescue plan. So the, the child tax credit that we just talked about was a huge component of the, the latest one, the, the American Rescue Plan, which came through in March. That's also what brought us, you know, stimulus payment number three. But the other biggie on that was that they made the first 10200 of of your unemployment income received 
if if your AGI was below 150,000 for married filers. So, you know, and that's per taxpayer. So it was possible for people making under under 150k to exclude up to 20,400 of unemployment benefits if husband and wife were both on on unemployment in 2020. Um, like I like I said earlier, you know, they they changed it in March. And so by that time, millions of people had filed. Um, and, and then when we started looking into what do we do here, the, the advice from the IRS is just hang tight. We're going to sort it out and send it to you. Uh, hopefully they get it right. Um, and, and hopefully they get it done soon. But, you know, it's another one of those things where I think it's going to be months before people get their money. I haven't, I haven't talked to anyone yet that, that says they got their refund on that. Um, let's see here. We already did the child tax credit and I think I covered everything there. Um, just reiterating on the child tax credit, you know, that's going to be messy and, and they've already made it pretty clear that if you get that money and you weren't supposed to, they are going to make you pay it back. So, and that can be big dollars. I mean, think about it. If you have two kids and, and one kid is age seven and one kid's age four, you know, your monthly payments are going to be about 550 bucks times six. So does that come out to 3,600? Am I wrong about that? I better not be wrong. Um, 3,300? Uh, I don't know. Anyways, somewhere in that ballpark. I have a 10 key. All right. Um, Let's see here. The earned income tax credit for, for lower taxpayer tax for people in the in the lower tax brackets, they they did increase the earned income tax credit um, by one thousand five hundred and twelve. You know, they, they increased the maximum credit by another one thousand five hundred and twelve. So it's possible if you if you max out earned income credit to get even more money this year, and and then another thing that they did was they lowered the age of eligibility. You know, typically to get EIC, you you uh, you have to be at least twenty five years old. They lowered that down to age nineteen. So so some of those lower income tax kid payers or, or, you know, kiddos that have left the nest, but they're not in college and you're not claiming them as dependents, that might actually affect them. Um, will this affect those who file at 1099? To answer your question, Joe, it, it, it depends, you know, so I, I assume by file at 1099 means you're filing Schedule C for sole proprietor and, and filing as self-employed. Self-employment income does count as earned income. So whether or not you qualify for that is just going to entirely depend on how much net income you had on your business, if that's your sole source of business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so that's a that's a potential to manipulate taxable income there. You know, let's say you have a sole proprietorship business and you actually did all right, but you bought a lot of equipment that year. You might want to work with your CPA to manipulate the the depreciation expenses on that first year of purchase of the equipment to kind of get hit the sweet spot on earned income credit that year. Um, let's see here. Oh, this is another one they did after I paid off my student loans. So student loans that are forgiven, um, any student loans that are forgiven between 2021 and 2025 will not be taxable income. So so that's another nice thing for 
those that have that happen to them. Um, going back into some of the employer credits for those of you that have employees, uh, the, the employee retention credit was the biggest one that they changed their mind on. And, and so what this was is it was essentially a credit that you could claim for, for keeping your, your people at work um, if, if certain things apply to you. Um, you, can, you can claim it in conjunction with the PPP as of December 20, but you, you really have to kind of get the planets to align. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ifs and buts that fall into it. But essentially what you do is you do a gross receipts comparison. Um, if your gross receipts have dropped by more than 20%, you know, if you're looking at 2020 and, and seeing if you can go back and get it for 2020, then the gross receipts test is you look at any quarter where you had at least a 50% drop and that's the quarter that it'll kick in. And then once your gross receipts come up to within 80% of current year, or prior year, I should say, then then that's when it'll turn off. So, you know, for example, if you had a hundred thousand, just so I can do the math in my head, you know, if if you have 50, 45,000 in sales in quarter two of 2020, and you look at quarter two of 2019 and you had a hundred thousand in sales, then that's game on for employee retention credit. Um, another another caveat to that is if you don't need the re gross receipts test, it's possible to, to meet it if, if there was a situation where you were shut down, um, you know, like a government mandated shutdown. You know, that was, that was the case for a lot of medical offices and, and things like that. So um, you really got to get the planets to align. But I mean, just in the last two months, you know, I had one client that their employee retention credit wound up being 51000 I am forever on their Christmas list, I guarantee you, because uh, they hadn't even heard of it. I just kind of caught that it would apply to them and, and knocked it out of the park. And, oh, man, they were stoked. And then and then another client, I just got 32000 So, I mean, it, depending on how big your payroll is and, and what kind of sales the business has, these can be real dollars. So at the very least, it's worth at least looking in your grocery seeds. And, and seeing where you're at if you have employees. You know, the credit can be up to 50% of $10,000 of wages per employee. And, and you claim it by amending your 941 reports, which are your, your FICA taxes. Um, you can either take it as a refund of taxes or you can have them send you a check, it depends. Uh, there's different rules for 2021 versus 2020. For 2021, it's even more strict. You know, you gotta have I believe it's like a 70% drop in gross receipts before it'll kick in. Um, so lots of hoops to jump through, but, but that's, that's one that, you know, for, for the few select clients we found that it applied to, it's, it's been huge. Um, some of the smaller employer credits is they've done more extensions of the, the paid family sick leave not paid family sick leave, don't confuse that with the Washington paid family sick leave, but there was, there was credits that you could take for sick and family leave on your 941 taxes if you were giving people uh, sick leave for, for um, you know, 
COVID, you know, you could give up to 80 hours of COVID sick leave to your employees and then take credit for it on, on your 941s. And then also even more obscure than that, they actually slipped in one where you can give people up to eight hours of paid sick leave for COVID vaccination. Um, and so, so that's another one. And that was just part of the, the whole thing to, to get people to get vaccinated and, you know, and for so many employees, I'd say three quarters of my staff, you know, once they got vaccinated, some of them were out for like four or five days and they just got wrecked by, by the second shot. Um, and then others walked it off. It just depended. Um, but, but yeah, you can take up to eight hours credit. So that's something to look into. Um, you might have to go back and, and amend some 941s, but depending on how many employees you have like that might be worth it. Um, you got to set it up. If you're using QuickBooks for your payroll, you got to, you got to set up like special things. So, so it flows right through to your 941s. Um, so if you're, if you're, you know, DIYing your 941s, just be careful. Don't, don't just press the print button if you're trying to claim these. Um, and that's, that's kind of the big ones on, on the employee tax provisions. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put you guys all to sleep. I don't think there's enough Red Bull to go through all of it. Um, but, but, you know, the, the future, what's the future hold? So, so, you know, moving forward, you know, how are we going to pay for all this? You know, we pumped through three different stimulus packages. You know, we're talking about six trillion, seven trillion added to the deficits. Uh, and, and this was when we already had an all-time high deficit. So, you know, right now we've got the lowest tax rates in the history of our country, coupled with the highest tax, coupled with the highest deficit we've ever seen. So um, sucks for our grandkids. Um, but, but, you know, they are going to, on a long enough timeline, I think the only, the only way we can see taxes going is up, you know, but I've been chicken littling that for like 15 years and, and they just keep lowering taxes. It's, it's kind of insane from a guy that knows how to balance the checkbook, but um but, you know, the, some of the things that they're going to do to help pay for this um, right now, right now it's iffy, you know, it, it's hard for them to really jack up taxes because we still have a fragile economy and things are just now starting to get back to normal um, or the new normal, whatever you want to call it. And, and so we've, we've still got a bit of a fragile economy that can't necessarily take the burden of, of a massive tax hike. Um, and so some of the things that are proposed, you know, they, they put this in with the new uh, budget proposal this year. Now, keep in mind, these are proposed. Usually I don't even like talking about proposed laws. Um, I try my hardest not to study them until they become actual law because people will call up and say, what do you think about this? And I mean, it's going to be highly compromised and watered down by the time it becomes actual law. And then it's hard for me to keep it straight in my head because, wait, is that a real thing or was it some proposal that I read? Um, but some of the proposals that they've talked about are raising the top tier tax bracket from, you know, right now the, the top tax rate is 37%. And 
you don't hit that until you get up around about half a million if you're married. So we'll call that one another good problem to have. But they're going to raise that up to the old rate, the 2017 rate of 39.6. And then the big one, the one to watch out for it, if that actually becomes uh, a law is, you know, capital gains over $1 million are, are going to be taxed at a rate of 37%, which is bonkers. You know, that's huge. Um, you figure when you're over a million dollars, you're already going to have other taxes kicking in, like additional Medicare tax and net investment tax. So that means your 37% is really going to be more like 43%. Um, and, you know, most people will hear that and they think like, oh, I'm not going to make over a million bucks. What if you have a rental with really low basis and real estate prices are bananas right now? Um, I had a guy call up the other day wanting to sell his rental. He didn't buy it that long ago, but I mean, the fact of the matter is the game would be over a million bucks. And in anticipation of this, I said, you know, under, if this goes through, you know, you're going to pay X amount of dollars in tax. And if it doesn't go through, you'll pay this amount. And I mean, the difference was, uh, it was about 300,000 for the guy, you know, that's, that's real money. Um, and so I said, you know, if you really do want to pull the trigger on this, and be on the safe side, then I demand that you split this. You find yourself a buyer that's willing to give you half the money now and half the money next year. And, and we'll do it as an installment sale. So we're only picking up 50% of the gain each year and, and that'll keep them out of the tax. Um, or at least the increase of the tax. I mean, a lot better to pay 21% versus 43%. That's huge when you're talking hundreds of thousands. Um, the other big thing that they're talking about doing is raising the corporate tax rates. Right now, C corporations have a tax rate of 21%. They're talking about raising that up to 28%. Um, and then they're also talking about putting just a straight 15% tax on C corporation book income because corporations wind up with a lot of like book tax differences. So on on their books, they might have actually made a boatload of money, but then due to certain tax provisions, they might show very little or no taxable income. Um, and so they're talking about putting a provision in there that's going to fleece them for 15% regardless. Um, yeah, that's that's perfectly correct, Joe. There's there's tax, tax, and more taxes coming. And and essentially that's that's just the way taxes work. I mean, we call it job security in my line of work, but uh um you know, I, I read a study several years ago that said it, it was one of the universities had taken the tax code and and they had analyzed how many tax law changes. I mean, we're talking across the board, trust, state, gift, corporation, partnership, all the different taxes. Um, how many tax law changes had occurred over the last 11 years? And, and the math boiled down to approximately one a day, you know, um, which is insane. You know, it's no, nobody can memorize tax code. I always tell people they're a fool if they try. Um, somebody like me, I'm just an expert in navigating it. So um, the summary of all this, you know, the, the proceeding was just kind of the tip of the iceberg. The, the, we've had massive tax law changes over the last three years and there's more on the horizon. So 
the odds of the average person successfully navigating all that is pretty slim. Um, you know, the, the, the message I would give you, which is just, you know, me preaching to the choir is, you know, get, get some help. Um, you know, go, go talk to your tax guy. If you don't have a tax guy, get a tax guy because the odds of them saving you more than what they charge you are pretty good. So that's about it for what I had for, for the summary. Go ahead. There was one more question in the chat. Uh, or sorry, it was uh, William because he had to leave early. So he sent one over to me. Um, what's the easy way to find out if my wife and I personally got all the funds we should have received from the IRS due to the COVID issues? Well, like all good tax questions, the answer is it depends. It depends. Um, <laughs> if, if you typically get direct deposit, the easiest way is to check your bank statements. Um, look up the bank statements for for the uh, look up the bank statements for for the time periods that we received them. Figure stimulus number one came in April of 2020, uh, or right around that. You know, within within about a six week period there, and then stimulus number two started showing up in people's bank accounts right around january 4th of 2021 so look at january and february and then stimulus number three started rolling out in mid-march of 2021 so look between march and may for those payments um and then as far as whether you got the full amount you know that's that's really where the it depends comes um you know for for some of my taxpayers uh, I just had to go back and backwards compute it. You know, I had to look at their 2019 info and figure out what their AGI was. Was it low enough to where they should have got the whole thing? Fine. How many kids do they have? You know, and, and just start doing the math on how much they should have received, and then verify that against what the clients told us. But you know, it was just a huge mess because you know you'd ask clients, "Hey, did you get stimulus number two? Nope. Well, they did, but they received it in January, so they don't tell you about it because they think it's 2021. Um, the IRS actually put out a tool where you could look up and see if they received it, and we were using that for a while, but they've since changed it. Um, it'll it'll tell you when it'll tell you the method. It'll tell you the date that they sent it and the method of the payment, whether it was paper check, whether they direct deposit it, or whether they sent you one of those debit cards. Um, if you want more detailed info, you can go to that lookup tool on the IRS website and you you have to set up like an IRS account uh, and verify your identity. They use a third party, uh, a third party provider called uh, ID.me. Um, and, and you set up that account, and then you can log into your IRS account using that. And then you can actually look up a transcript of your, your actual stimulus payments to see exactly what you got. Awesome. Um, we have a, one more minute. I just want to make sure you join us back here next Tuesday. Um, we, we are on Uplift Kits Up again, talking about the upcoming workplace. But we have one more question. Uh, can you talk about the long-term care tax in Washington? Ah, yeah, yeah. So the the new long term care tax, uh, it's a relatively small tax that that they're gonna subject us to. But I'm not super excited about it. I mean, you know the 
the it it sounds good on paper, but I, I I kind of feel personally like it's a money grab by the state because and the reason I say that is okay, so they have this new tax, and I mean I forget what the the rate is. I think it's like five cents on every thousand or something like that. You know, um, it's it's a fairly small tax. You know, if you're making a hundred grand, then you'd wind up paying maybe a couple hundred bucks in tax throughout the year. Uh, you give it to Washington State, it's going to get filed from, you know, with the Employment Security Department, who also covers the, the state unemployment and paid family medical leave. Um, we're going to have to file yet another tax return. There's no way you can just consolidate these things. Um, and and the Employment Security Department is just the worst, man. They never know what's going on. Um, and so we we got to deal with them on, on this third thing. Uh, there is a one-time opt-out if you already have coverage or if you go out and get your own policy or get a group policy um, for, for your business, as long as you have that in place by, by November of 2021, then that's going to allow you to get a special letter that will allow you to opt out of those taxes. For those that don't have that in place, um, it's, it's going to, you know, there's not going to be any opt out or, you know, for, for somebody like my kid who's 17 and he'll be going into the workforce, he's got no choice. He's just going to have to pay into this, um, to be able to claim it, you have to pay into it for at least 10 years. Um, and, and then once you do claim it, you're going to wind up having, uh, I think it's like $30,000 worth of long-term care coverage, which I mean, that's kind of garbage coverage for long-term care. I mean, I see people's, you know, long-term care statements all the time for their tax returns. And I mean, you know, it's, it's routinely between 60 and 90,000 for those places if you need serious care. Um, it's very similar to other long-term care. You know, you got to have certain life events, you know, you, you have to meet, check a box for X number of things, you know, can't, can't feed yourself, can't take care of yourself, et cetera. Um, but here's the kicker too. You can't move away. If you move out of Washington for, for, I think it's like five years, then, then you don't get coverage until you come back for X amount of time too. So, you know, um, they, they've got lots of ifs and buts in there to where people won't get paid on it. And then, you know, but, but they're making it to where like everybody will have it. And yeah, it's exactly right. It's like every other tax, you know, they started at one rate and they'll slowly increase it over time, you know, and as they should, because, you know, 0.058 cents to cover 30,000 of yearly benefits for X number of people, it, it doesn't really pencil out, you know. Um, I think they're counting on the fact that lots of people won't qualify for it that have paid in. Um Somebody had asked the question, do I think it's worth it to get my own, you know, your own policy? It depends. I mean, it's it's really a personal decision. You know, are, are you planning on being healthy? I you figure most people have a 50-50 shot of going into long-term care, but whether or not you need long-term care insurance, um, it depends on how old you are. Uh, if you're under a certain age, I think they won't issue a long-term care policy if you're under age 25. Um, there's been so many people applying for policies that some companies have stopped issuing new policies 
for Washington State. Um, and, and there's even fewer companies that are now doing group plans. Um, I do know of one company that's an insurance broker over in Seattle called Cummings, Frazier and Associates, and, and they still run group plans for, for long-term care. So if you're interested in that, um, you can go to, to their website and, and contact them. Um, and then, you know, it, it's obviously more expensive to have a, a, a real policy versus the, the state policy, but, you know, the, the coverage is going to be better. Um, I, I myself am going to go ahead and get one just because why not, but I'm actually going to get like this hybrid policy to where it doubles as, as a form of life insurance. So, you know, it's not, it's not a typical long-term care policy. It's a little more expensive, but you know, it, it basically guarantees somebody will get one. You know, if I don't use it for long-term care, then my wife will get it when I die or my heirs, whatever, you know, somebody's going to get paid. So it's not wasted money. Um, so maybe look into a policy like that, you know, talk with your financial advisors, get some quotes. Uh, the, the price of a policy really depends on how old you are, how, you know, all, all those types of factors. So that's going to factor into your decision. The, the tax itself, it's not so bad that, you know, it's really a deterrent for people, but it is kind of a hard one for us to swallow just because I think the, the majority feeling on it is, you know, how many people are actually going to use this. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know we're dealing with lots of questions on that one. (laughs) Matt and I were talking about it several weeks ago. Um, Any other questions for Johnny? We are over time, but if you have more questions, going once, going twice, sold. (laughs) Thank you so much, Johnny. That is so much to navigate for us and we have no clue. So we really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this will come out in a couple of weeks on a podcast so you can share that out and help more people. So thank you very much. We'll see you all next week right here on Uplift Kids Up. Have a productive day. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Heartbeat of Kitsap with Silverdale Chamber of Commerce. If you like our show, you want to know more, check us out at silverdalechamber.com or kitsapbusinessforum.com. And please leave us a review on Apple Radio. Until next time, have a productive day. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses.
If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. You know, just this morning, my son, Keone, he's 11 years old now. Uh, he stood up next to my wife, April, and literally, they're almost the same height. It's a little scary, number one, because Keone was taller than I was at his age, and uh, it just makes you realize just how precious they are, but how quickly life goes by. Um, you definitely want to savor every moment uh, as much as possible, right? So on that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, right? I've been thinking a lot about this, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital, no doctors, no needles, no paperwork, when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to a person, their team of licensed agents, they don't work on commission, so they'll help you and not upsell you, which is you know, always the worry with some of these kinds of things. No hidden fees, cancel at any time, get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days, and ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims, and they're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash SPI today to see if you're instantly improved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI, ladderlife.com slash SPI. Today's sponsor is Headspace, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but here you go. You deserve to feel better than you do today. And you can with Headspace. They make meditation simple. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. I know because guess what? I use it myself. It's the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Their approach to mindfulness can reduce your stress, improve your sleep, boost your focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. But it's just not me. Check the numbers. Four weeks of Headspace can increase focus by 14%, and only three weeks of use has shown to cut down aggression to negative feedback by a whopping 57%. That's crazy. With Headspace, you can be 28% less sad in just 10 days. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. Today, you're about to hear a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that this person tells me in this episode he's never shared before because nobody's ever asked him these questions before. And I'm really excited to bring on somebody who has been on the show before, but somebody who's came on to talk about health and sleep and how important that is for entrepreneurs. But today, we're talking specifically about the behind the scenes of how this man runs his business and how he gets things done, behind the scenes of writing a traditional book and running his podcast, his video show. His name is Sean Stevenson from The Model Health Show, a fan favorite here, and I cannot wait to go behind the scenes with you. So let's talk all about it. How does the man run the show? That and more here today on the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Let's go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's got two shoeboxes full of business ideas he has to continually say no to, Pat Flynn. 
What's up, everybody? Paplin here, and welcome to session 497 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Happy July, if you're listening to this at the time this comes out. I hope you are doing well this summer. I hope you're getting some things done and having some fun under the sun. You know what I mean? But anyway, today we're gonna have some fun because we're talking with Sean Stevenson, literally one of the only podcasts I subscribe to because I did a huge purge a number of years ago, but I had to keep Sean's on because it was teaching me all about health, mental, and physical fitness, and I'm super grateful for him because he's a great friend of mine, and we're actually in a mastermind group together. We chat with each other every single week with a group of people, so I know all about what's been going on in his business, especially with the launch of his recent book, Eat Smarter, which I recently saw in Target, Actually, I didn't see any Pokemon cards, but I saw his book staring at me in the face, and I'm proud of him because I know how much he's worked to get there, and we're going to talk all about that work and how he runs the show today, so let's just dive right in. Here he is, Sean Stevenson from The Model Health Show. Let's go. Sean, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, my friend. Thanks for coming back. It's my honor. Back to the future anytime, man. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to chat with you because you've been doing so much stuff. And last time we chatted, we talked, uh, I think your last book, Sleep Smarter, came out, which was super revolutionary for me personally. So thank you for that. And now you have a new book out called Eat Smarter. Are we going to see a whole string of books? Like, I don't know what other smarters you might have in mind, but is this like a whole line that you're starting right now? Absolutely. It's the smarter universe is what we're calling it. Yeah. I like it. Do you, can you tell us what's coming next or no? No, man, you, it's top secret right now, ah, but it's, it's okay. special. But right now, Eat Smarter is, is still just fresh out of the oven. And so that's what I'm focused on. But yes, there is definitely two more projects at least coming up. That's sweet. So tell me about the experience of writing Eat Smarter compared to Sleep Smarter. What did you take from your first experience with Sleep Smarter to then hopefully make Eat Smarter better? Wow. Perfect, man. This I love talking with you, Pat, because I get to talk about stuff I usually don't talk about. When I first wrote Sleep Smarter, which it became an international bestseller translated in like 20 different countries. We just signed actually another translation deal, I think a week or two ago. And it did all of this crazy stuff beyond my paradigm at the time. But when I first wrote it, I was still running my clinical practice as a nutritionist. And I had a podcast going, you know, it had really like taken off, taken off. But I was like working with patients every day. And so what I would do is I was block out about three hours the first part of the day and just work on the book. And now when I'm saying this, I actually self-published it first. So I wrote the self-published version of it that way, writing in the morning, seeing clients and patients later in the day. And then that version of the book took off and then it garnered the attention of all these different major publishers. They went into a bidding deal, all that stuff. And then I kind of like signed like a free agent deal or something like that. Nice. And nice, then nice. I got to write the book that I really wanted to write. And in that I had actually transitioned. I was still seeing a couple of clients, but I was mainly just writing, working on the show and speaking. And when I made that shift, Pat, because a lot of us, we we hang on, we hang on to every thread so that our current comfort doesn't unravel, you know? And so even though everything was just like calling for me to let go of my clinical practice, which I love to do, but I wasn't in love with it. Once I did that and just focus on writing and teaching and speaking and podcasting, everything just skyrocketed. And with Eat Smarter, I understood my rhythm. And so I'm a very much of the type of person, you got to understand who you are too. I have an obsessive personality. And so What I did was I just literally shut down everything else that was not a necessity. Like I would go to the studio, I block stuff so I could research full for a day for show content, 
record for a day. And then the rest of the week really was spent on researching and writing for this book. And that's not typical, you know, it's not normal or doable for some people, but that's how my life structure, I could kind of manage it, but I go really intense. And it's just kind of this framework of blocking off time, which you do as well for certain things on certain days. And it really worked well for me. So when you wrote Eat Smarter and you were like, okay, I need to go deep on this. I'm going to get rid of these things. What were those things that you sort of put pause on or blocked out so that you could make room for this? Oh, Pat, I love you, dude. This is like, I haven't shared this with anybody. I turned down so many like really cool speaking events that I normally would have done. I had to make tough decisions. You know, I did like have kind of had that delayed gratification, you know, and just like, let me focus on this thing now. It's really, that's what your brand is too. focus on this thing now, build this thing now so I can enjoy the fruits of it later. But the fruits, little did I know, you know, it'd be COVID fruits. It have little, you know, spiked proteins on the fruits. Uh, but it was so interesting because that's what I did. I was turning down things. I was also, we had just moved to, to California from St. Louis, which I don't recommend people move their family across the country while writing a book. It's not, that's not a good idea. All right. Yeah. So I did that in the midst, but all the while I'm starting to get invited to these different things, these different masterminds, all this stuff. I just had to really exercise that no muscle, or at least not right now muscle. And the funny thing is like, there's an energy shift that took place because suddenly like the content that I had out there in the internet sphere, like now I had these, you know, quote, celebrities reaching out to work with me. You know, so it was just really weird. And I had to turn that stuff down. So it was just kind of like saying no to the things that were not essential. But all the while, we still have to have our monetary side covered. So, you know, I really, again, streamlined my show, streamlined our sponsorship, you know, working along, of course, with you and our mastermind and just keeping my mindset in the right place, you know, my email list to keep everything rolling. But I knew that I would have a little bit of a lull as far as our income while I worked on this project to see the big explosion later on. I like that phrase, the not right now muscle or the the NRN. I'm gonna I'm gonna start using that. The the NRN muscle. How do you turn down opportunities? Let's say, for example, you get this big potential opportunity, celebrity endorsement, or get on a show or something, and you know, you're writing this book, but how do you know that that's not an opportunity you should say yes to? Or is it just like a blanket, nope, can't do it right now. If it's meant to happen, it's gonna happen later, kind of thing. This is one of the most challenging things for us to really accept, but this is a reality. Every time you say yes to something, you're automatically saying no to something else. It's just the nature of reality. We don't have clones of ourselves yet. So we, whenever we, we're doing something, we can't simultaneously do something else or at least not do it well. And so knowing that it's already coming into it, like I've made this commitment to do this thing. Come what may, I'm working on this book and I want to make this book something that really stands the test of time, changes culture, is able to impact the lives of all the people that I, that really need it and give people a voice that haven't had a voice before, really help people to understand how their bodies work, which is crazy that it hasn't really been done in book form like I did it. And all of that mattered more. And so it's kind of like you have to come with something that is such a absolute hell yes. But until that point, it's a no, I can't do that. And this is a thing that we all have to go through. We compromise, right? Especially early on when we've got that bright and shiny, like different opportunities start to spring up and we see this and that. We can start to lease our time out and realize later that it wasn't an efficient or effective use of our time, but it still helps to develop us and grow that muscle so that we can get to that place where I really do think it might be an advanced conversation 
for folks right now, being able like, why would you turn that down? Well, I understand the opportunity cost at this point. And I wouldn't have even, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have understood and been able to do what I did. Thank you for that. I, I want to talk just a couple more technical sort of in the weeds of the book writing process for you. And then I want to move to your podcast and your show and monetization because your show has been exploding. You're also doing the YouTube thing. There's a lot of components kind of happening on top of each other now. But you had mentioned earlier that when you were writing Sleep Smarter, you had written it self-published. All of my books currently have been self-published. I would love to know when you had now a publisher working with you, you said you had it rewritten. Was that your choice? Were they asking you, well, hey, we'll only work with you if you make these changes. I'm just so curious to hear because first self-published, then not self-published traditionally. What were they asking for? And what are your thoughts on self-published versus traditional? Perfect. Yeah, this is this is very important. When I first published Sleep Smarter and I just did the work, I created the product, which I really felt was a gap in the market. It was a missing conversation. And this is prior to a lot of folks have been exposed to it. It's a part of the popular lexicon at this point, different things with sleep wellness and the importance of sleep wellness. But this was like, you know, 2013, maybe uh, 2012, somewhere, somewhere around, I think 2013, when I wrote, wrote the first version of it. And I did the work really to just get the message out there. I wasn't thinking about, quote, selling books. And it was just a side effect. But we had sold over like 10,000 copies when I finally met with this literary agent. And it just happened to be these string of different events that that made that happen. And they were just like, what? And where did you come from? Kind of thing. And so once they pitched it, kind of put it into their channel, their funnel of exposure, we got offers from 11 publishers, including the big five. And some of them, like one of the big five wanted to just literally just repackage it basically and just put it right out. They just wanted to get it out immediately and keep that momentum going. But for me, I knew that the conversation was bigger than that. And I wanted to expand on certain things. I really just had this template. Honestly, I was trying to write this book. It was 20, it's 21 clinically proven strategies, but I wanted to do that process within a month. I didn't know that it wasn't a thing. Right. And that's kind of like with with our friend John Lee Dumas, when he was telling people about doing a seven day a week podcast, we're just kind of ignorant enough to believe that it's possible. And so it ended up being like 45 days that I wrote it in, but it was just very punchy, very practical. But there was so much more that I wanted to say. I want to make it a masterpiece and a really, you know, a work of art and something that could really be valuable for years to come. So I went with a publisher that had the same vision you know, had the same vision for me and also had the wellness brand behind it. I, I, actually, I went with Rodale, who's kind of like a wellness brand, like a major wellness brand in books. And now this is where we get in the conversation of self-publishing versus traditional publishers. I want to make this very clear for everybody. Right now, the publishing industry is very much like Blockbuster and Netflix kind of transition taking place. They unfortunately, don't even care much about you having a great product more than having a platform. And that's unfortunate that it's like that. And most folks, they're getting ghostwriters. They're they're not really even writing the books themselves, which is okay. But they're looking for people who have a platform just to move units, not necessarily have great works of art or great messages or things that are really high value. And here's the most important point that I want everybody to get. They need you way more than you need them. Just about everything that a traditional publisher can do, you can do on your own and you can keep your own rights. You can keep your own revenue. You can make the changes you want. Because I've allowed, I've kind of given away ownership of my own creation. It's like 
when Prince got upset that he didn't own his masters of his music. He changed his name and every, everything. Like I'm thinking about changing my name. You know, I could be the symbol of, I don't know, maybe a muscle emoji formerly known as Sean Stevenson, you know, just to, because it's like, it's this crazy thing where for me, my big, and you got to understand your own psychology as well. So the reason I did that was impact. I felt that that would be the best way that I can make impact the fastest. So that's why I partnered up with a traditional publisher. And of course, being that I had a platform and momentum, that's where the money comes from. And so they did give me a big advance, but that's not typical. It's rare to get an advance in the six figures and, and above kind of range, but it can happen, you know, but first you can get out and do it yourself because truthfully, this is the thing, it's an advance. It's still your money. It's like, you have to pay that back, you know? So it's still technically your money. And I would have made that money anyways with my self-published version and more and been able to do the things and make the changes that I wanted when I wanted to, which is when you're dealing with a publisher, they are not going to care remotely as much as you do about your product. Not even close, not even in the same stratosphere. Because what the tendency is, and I can tell you this, I've worked with several of these, the big five, like the, the best of the best publishers. And it's the same pattern, which is they care about your book and your product as long as it's business hours. As long as it's not a long weekend. It's, oh, long weekends, forget about it. You know, and my book actually, Eat Smarter came out over the New Year's and Christmas holiday. It came out December 29th. So it was like a ghost town and so many different things were going on at that point. So you've got to keep that in mind as well. Everything that you would think a traditional publisher can do, you can do yourself and you don't have to get a permission slip or to rally the troops to get behind your idea. So there's pros and cons. There's much, much more that I could share to unpack that whole experience for sure. Yeah, that's like, I mean, we could have a five hour conversation about that. And I have many, many more questions. Somebody who is in the middle of writing another book and making a decision on which path I want to take. So more on that later. Uh, that might actually be the first time everybody listening may have heard about that. So anyway, more on that later, I promise. But I think a lot of what you mentioned speaks to the power of having a platform. When you have a platform, when you have an audience, when you have attention, which is the currency that we're all actually shooting for online, uh, you have power, you have ability, you have options, you have more decisions that you have to make and uh, hopefully you make the right ones. And your platform that I know you from, that I, I follow you on, that I know you're known for is your podcast, right? The Model Health Show. It's huge. And I'd love to know how you do what you do with the podcast. I want to start with the fact that it is some of the most well-researched stuff that I've seen that's still entertaining. How do you bring information in a way that is entertaining, keeps us on our toes, and also provides the right information at the same time? What is the process for like an episode? Maybe it's an episode that's coming up. I'd love to know just how much time and effort you put into it. How do you do that because I, I I know you know a lot. <laughs> you, you can't know all the things you talk about. Like you've got to be reading off of something sometimes. I don't know. Get like spill the beans on how you do that because it's so informative. I love the show so much. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. For me, my process is simple. You know, I think that some of the most effective and graceful things that we can do in life and potentially successful are the things that just kind of fit with our character. You know, I'm a very logical kind of seeing is believing evidence-based person, which leads me into a tendency of, but that doesn't mean that there's things outside of that spectrum that are outside of logic that don't exist. But I'm willing to look at the data and I'm also open-minded just enough to be able to 
question things and to allow things in that other folks might not. So it kind of creates this little bit of a chemistry set that makes me up where I'm very passionate about learning. I'm very passionate about research. And so I spend a lot of my days reading through peer-reviewed journals and staying on top of, you know, right now I've been studying chronobiology the past week, which is essentially this rapidly growing field of medicine, looking at how the timing of things, you know, the timing of day when you take different supplements or medication or eating, all these different things, there's these little internal clocks in every single cell in our body, the trillions of cells that we have. And there's some fascinating things being seen in like cancer research, obesity, the list goes on and on. So, but I get really turned on by these things, but the average person, here's the thing in my clinical practice, I never met one person in the thousands of people that I work with in my clinical practice and also different trainings and live events and all that stuff. I've never met one person who didn't want to be healthy. Not once. There were people who there's a barrier of entry for them psychologically. They might feel that it's too hard, that it's too complex, that it's too time-consuming, that they don't have the resources. There's going to be a reason why they might not be the place that they want to be. I've never met a person who doesn't want to be healthy. I address those barriers of entry, which one of the biggest ones is complexity and ease into getting into the thing. So even though I might be passionate about understanding these various aspects of human anatomy, as I mentioned, I'm studying chronobiology, but really I'm versed in where I've really been pressing into culture is nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, so how our nutrition affects our genetic expression. But how do we take that and translate that to the everyday person who just wants to slim their waistline or who just wants to be able to have more energy or fill in the blank? I know that a big part of sustainability is people having the education, understanding why, like a deeper why that they're doing the thing that they're doing. And so I'm bringing that into the conversation. So as I'm studying these often very dry pieces of work, these are written by scientists for scientists. And so there's not, and it's a language as well. It's like a foreign language to be able to decipher the meaningful portions. And I want to share this with everybody because I don't think a lot of folks know this. When we've got a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial, like gold standard of clinical trials, finding the efficacy of, we'll just say, astaxanthin, right? This is a compound that's found in krill oil, this little microscopic shrimp. We get a study done on astaxanthin and we find it's like, okay, 40% greater improvement in cardiovascular performance, 20% greater weight loss in a controlled trial, whatever it is. And I'm just making these things up. But we find this thing out that it is incredibly effective at getting blank result. Even when we get that proof, it takes on average over 15 years for it to get utilized in clinical medicine. And actually a physician a healthcare practitioner recommending it and sharing it with the patient. 15 years at the age of the internet, it makes no sense. We should know like yesterday, knowing that what I do is as I'm going through the data, I'm thinking this really, and I'm going to make this so simple. I'm constantly thinking this thing in my mind. How can I teach this? Right? So I'm just, as I'm reviewing the data, as I'm sitting with it, I'm thinking, how can I teach this? How can I make the process of fat loss and metabolism, how can I make that like going to the movies? How can I link those two together, right? Because that's what the process of learning really is, is taking something that you don't know and connecting it to something that you already know. That's the merger. That's how learning really takes place, especially deep 
learning, you know, something that's truly impactful. That's what I'm going into with the process and doing it in that way. When you teach something, you get to learn it twice. So I'm already in the state, in the mindset of teaching it. And so it really starts to become more embedded in my cells, you know, in my memory. And from there, you know, we're going into the shows and it just drives it further and further. So I start to become, I was just with this physician the other day and we finished the show. He, he was interviewing me and he was like, you're, you're a walking, talking, cool version of PubMed. And I'm just like, damn, okay, I'll take that. And that's the other part of the equation as well. This is so crazy. We still have to talk about this because marketers really tend to screw everything up, you know, which you know this, you know, we take something like this word authenticity and it's a thing that you do. Authenticity isn't something you do. It's who you are. And so I have to break through my barriers because when I first started in this space and when I first started, you know, going from the office, seeing clients coming in the doors to standing on stages to the podcasting domain, which for me, again, this is back in like 2000. 12, I think, not for this show, not for the Model Health Show, but I was the resident nutritionist, quote, resident nutritionist for this big online brand, this big online magazine. And I was doing their podcast first. They, they met me at, a, I was speaking at an event. And afterwards they came up to me and they, because at first, it, even when they met me, they were just like, you know, it's kind of like when you meet somebody and it's just like, well, you know, how important are you? So, which I should have caught that vibe then. But after I got off stage, they were like, that was amazing. You know, we just started this podcast. We need somebody to be the, the face of the brand. And I was like, yeah, you know, because I just started my website and I thought that field of dreams consciousness, which is like, if you build it, they will come and like all this attention is going to come. But we just had like a couple of hundred visitors a day or maybe even a week or something like that. But they had like a million unique visitors a month. And so I was like, absolutely, I'll do it. I literally said yes to something. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what a podcast was. But when I was doing that, and this is the message, I was speaking in a language that I felt was a little bit more appropriate for the audience, which is being a little bit more technical, being a little bit more holding back my personality, my tendency, which is to, I just want to have fun. I want to make learning fun. I want to make people feel really good and empowered. And so, but now I'm just kind of really speaking through this technical language, a little bit more vanilla in my approach. And I did that for over a year and a half. And that podcast had like hundreds of thousands of downloads, which back in 2011 or 2012, whenever that was, that was a big deal. But I was building their brand. And as it was going along more and more towards the end of our collectively, you know, going our separate ways amicably, I was more and more being, just allowing myself to be myself. I'm glad that I did it, but I'm a little disappointed looking back on it that I didn't do it sooner. Like, what are you doing? Be you. And part of it definitely is a fear of not being accepted. And we all have that to some degree, you know, especially coming from where I'm from. I grew up, the majority of my years lived on planet Earth were in Ferguson, Florissant, Missouri. The environment that I was in, which has become kind of infamous now, it's a very complex, volatile environment for many aspects, but also just beautiful people and a willingness and a wanting for a better life. And coming up through a lot of fighting and a lot of, you know, even in the academic sense, being really instilled from an early age from my grandmother, the importance of education. And so I'm just this marriage of all of these different complex dynamics and working at a university for many years, 
that really set me to it. And I didn't know what was happening at the time. But when I was in college, I worked at the university as a strength and conditioning coach. And I worked with people from all over the world, like literally from India, from China, from Germany, from France, from South America, from Canada. The list goes on and on and on, all parts of the United States. And I can see the consistencies in people. And I could see that we're all so much the same, but yet there's these little nuances. And so I bring that into all of that stuff to fully allow it to be present in the show that I do now. And it connects with so many different people as a result, funny enough. That's the other big part is not allowing authenticity to be something that we do. It's a thing I'm doing authenticity, but really being unafraid to be who you are. If you're super weird, if you're like super into, I don't know, like Pat's into stuff that people might think is weird, but it's just, it connects so deeply with certain people. You know, same thing with me. I'm a big fan of this superhero paradigm. Like I was just in there making my food and I was telling my wife, hey babe, you know, today's Robert Downey Jr.'s birthday. All this stuff, it just makes me happy. I don't know. But it's because there's a thread there, of course, in that superhero story, the rise of the superhero and, you know, the meaning, there's different layers there, but that might seem weird to people, but for some people, it's going to really connect and resonate. It's that more connective tissue. So we've got to be unafraid to be ourselves because the right people are going to connect with us. And the last point here with this is that what I really brought to the table that is still, it's changing now a little bit, but I was the only person there when I started the podcast I didn't have an email list for real. I had like 300 people on my email list. I didn't have all of the connections and all that stuff. If there's an example to follow and for you to really know that you can do this, it is me. It is me. And what I did was I just didn't stop. I kept showing up. Even though it was 100 listeners, I was creating shows as if it was a million. And eventually it became those millions. But I kept showing up. My first guest, and I did a different little formula as well, which was kind of unique at the time, I would do about 50% of my shows would be these master classes that Pat's talking about where I'm sharing the definitive guide on whatever the subject matter might be. So maybe it's understanding type two diabetes and reverse engineering that and all the clinically proven stuff that we can do there. If you're on metformin, if you're on insulin, whatever to help to normalize your blood sugar, the list goes on and on. I do that kind of stuff, but then I would do like interviews as well. Some shows were just like people that just kind of do their show. And then there was like interview shows and I was marrying the two together. But let me tell you guys, my first guest wasn't the Olympic gold medal winner that I've had on the show before, you know, the Hall of Fame baseball player like Ozzie Smith or the top gastroenterologist in the world. Or my first guest was a medalist, but a bronze medalist, not just a bronze medalist, but in an obscure sport of synchronized swimming. Please understand, it doesn't have to be this like, as a matter of fact, I think you can kind of sabotage or handicap yourself going for everything that's so big and bright right out of the gate if you have to be ready for it. Every step along the way was just like really working those different muscles and building the brand as it went along and just creating a really great catalog after about a year of just work and giving, everything eventually took off. Yeah, and like you said, just keep going and allow for those opportunities to happen. Like you're saying, thank you so much for that. You answered a lot of questions that I actually had written down as you were talking. So th thank you for that. I, w I wanted to ask you for more moments that you've experienced as you've progressed and as you've, you've transformed or mutated, if you will. 
from scrappy entrepreneur to CEO, what are some specific examples that you can remember that you had to make a decision that you know is like putting your big boy pants on, business specific, switching from scrappy entrepreneur to becoming a more pro? Going pro is letting go of mundane activities, letting go of things that you do not need to be spending your time doing. And it was a big challenge for me because being somebody who's a creative as well, even though I'm very analytical, I'm also a creative person. I want to create. I want to take that data and turn it into something dynamic and beautiful and fun. And so there were certain aspects like writing the show notes for the podcast. Every week we publish an episode. I would spend so much time writing the show notes, which still, even today, even though we might have tens of millions of downloads, there's not many people going and actually reading the show notes, like really like it's the, it's the highlight of the experience. But for me, it was like, no, I need to do this because it keeps me sharp and it's a muscle and, you know, only I could do it, whatever. Now I haven't looked at my show notes in years. And my wife tried to show me and asked me a question about the show notes like a year ago. And I was like, why would you even ask me? You know, and she's the one who had been pressing me so much to let it go. She's the one who hired the person to do it. And now going pro is focusing on the thing that you are really necessary for and outsourcing and letting go of the rest. That's a big part of going pro. And so it was challenging for me. There's still levels of it that I'm sure I need to, to work on. Matter of fact, I know that I need to work on, but like, I can't even believe Pat. And I think, I don't know, I want to ask you the same thing. Has it surprised you? Like all of a sudden, like, wow, I've got like a whole team. It started off as just like me and my wife. And then we had an assistant. And then now we've got like seven people on our team. We have like teams who work with other stuff. And like, I don't even know how it happened except going pro, letting go of things, up leveling here. Because here's the secret. There are certain things that you might think you're great at that somebody else can do five times better, 10 times better. And they can just spend their time doing that thing where you might be pulling yourself away, you know, saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else the best use of your time would not be on that thing, right? You video editing or whatever the case might be. Not to say you can't do it. There's a time and a season for that, especially if you might not have the resources. There's always a way. But today we have so many resources at our disposal that can be cost effective. It might cost you a little bit of time to find the person that fits that budget for you. But once you do it, it can create a level of freedom. So that's one thing that jumps to mind right out of the gate is being able to let go of things and allowing my team to start to, you know, kind of grow around me. Yeah, that's a great answer. And to answer your question to me earlier, yeah, it definitely sort of, I look back and I'm like, whoa, when did all this happen? Because I now have a team of employees and contractors that we work with. And initially when I got into this, it was very much, I just want to be me. And the, the whole reason I'm doing all this is so I can just make my own choices and stuff. But you know, like you said, letting go of the things that are mundane or the things that maybe even you are good at but shouldn't do, it's been a world of freedom. And yes, it might cost some money, but money you can always make more of. You can never get time back. And that's something that's become very, very on top of my mind, especially as the kids have gotten older. I love how you had mentioned that your wife is working for you. How involved is like the whole family and what is that you do or, or, or are things pretty separate? All right, just to be clear, Pat said that she works for me. I work for her. I don't want. There you go. Sorry for that. You're right. You're right. I don't want any, you know, attacks happening behind me. 
right now <laughs> with my back stirred. But, you know, so <laughs> it's an amazing experience because there was a time where, you know, I was working as a strength conditioning coach. She bought me my first health and fitness book. I was doing a lot of research online, reading some papers, things like that. But it was like my, my birthday or something. She she bought me this book from Gunnar Peterson, who's this personal trainer, like super celebrity personal trainer. And I still have that book to this day. And now Gunnar follows me on Instagram. Now he's in my sphere. Of course, like, we're going to connect and do some stuff eventually. But, you know, she bought me my first book. She believed in me because every week I would schedule my clients on this little rickety notepad. And she bought me these little fancy notebooks, schedulers. And every like year she would buy me a new one. She was like investing me in these small ways, but she was running her mother's occupational therapy business. And she brought that skill set over. And my wife has the same thing that I have, which is we care, full stop, actually. We care. It doesn't matter what day it is, what time it is. If something needs to get done, we'll get it done. So that's what you don't see with the publisher, by the way, again, you know, but you can still operate within their domain. But my wife cares the same amount that I do to make sure that we provide a level of congruence and efficacy and love and care and impact and all those things. So uh, eventually, you know, we started working together and <laughs> early on, it was definitely a lot more me convincing her to, to do stuff because we got to understand our personalities as well. Like I mentioned, my priority is like impact. I'm very much a growth driven person. I want to grow every day. I just want to get better. I could feel at peace when I lay my head down at night, if I just got a little bit better at something through that day. My wife's big driving force is certainty. If her certainty needs are not covered, then thinking about growth, that's just going to create tension between us. And so once I made a shift to start really focusing on addressing her certainty needs, like getting little stuff taken care of that, you know, I was off like, babe, let's go, you know, there's this event out here and da, da, da. she's looking at the budget like, nah, that's not a good idea. But I'm like, babe, but doing one of those things, going out to speak at this TEDx event, it was TEDx Sin City. So it was in Las Vegas. She was six months pregnant. We flew standby. So it was a friend of ours, worked for the airline. So we had standby tickets, which means you stand by. And if they have room, they'll let you on the plane. Which when we first got there, it was all great. Like we went in, got on the plane, went to Las Vegas. Getting back though, it was a nightmare. We ended up getting rerouted. We ended up in Dallas for the night. When we live in St. Louis, like it was a whole thing. But at that event is where the folks came up to me afterwards and asked me about being a part of their podcast. If I didn't do that, if I didn't take that strategic risk, I wouldn't be talking with you guys right now. It's that knowing, but also understanding your partner. And especially if you're working together, being able to address their certainty needs or whatever their thing is to make the thing happen. And so now today, once that happened, she pushes me. She brings to the table all these different creative ideas outside of our normal day-to-day. -day. So it's understanding that thing. And also the biggest part though is still, for me, she's the most important person in my universe. So having our relationship, we got to keep that in context of the work relationship, you know, and not understanding who she is, her personality in it, and my personality in it. It's not always perfect, but I've learned, <laughs> I've learned over time. She has a personality. She gets focused. She gets locked in and she doesn't really want to be bothered. I'm the same way, but when we're interacting with each other, I'm definitely much more playful, you know, and just understanding these little things. So she's become a little bit more playful, 
And I've become a little bit more like, okay, let's keep the ball moving, you know, when we're interacting with each other. So I can go on and on in the dynamic with that. But ultimately, especially with the context of having a husband and wife working together or partners, it's understanding each other's personalities, each other's strengths. I'm not going to say the word weaknesses in context of my wife, Pat. I'm not going to do that. Uh, But I would say that our, our tendencies towards potential negativity. All right. So understanding those things, I think it's always having that North Star. At the end of the day, my North Star, even though it's impact in the world and like I'm very driven to help the little kids out there that were like me growing up in a household where there's violence, where there's abuse, where there's drug use and all these different things and wanting to be free of those things and wanting to be something, wanting to just to have a level of safety. It really drives me. But that work starts in my own home. That work starts with my own child. I've got my two sons. My, my daughter's the oldest, but I've got my two sons. You know, my oldest son is 20. My daughter's the oldest. My oldest son is 20. He's in college. And my youngest son is nine, which is so weird. I know it's so crazy, especially if you see us all together. You're like, how do you have this college kid? Uh, but that's the other dynamic of the family situation that you asked about. My son, Jordan, right now, he's a personal trainer. And he's created his own online courses. And it's so beautiful, man. You know, it's such a wonderful thing. But he also is a college football player. And right now it's just been kind of weird with him practicing and playing, but he's been investing that time. And he's learning from my friends in my circle, which is always helpful if, if for parents out there. It is like a superpower to bring somebody else a different voice because there's that statement that you can't be a prophet in your own land. And just that proximity might make it so your child doesn't necessarily listen to you like it's gospel. But, you know, if you could bring in another voice or other voices. So I would bring my kids with me. If I'm speaking at an event, a lot of the time, more than half the time, I'm bringing them with me. I'm getting them airline tickets as well, or the event is getting them airline tickets. And they're going to be there and they're going to soak all that stuff up. The seeds get planted. But right now, the last part is he's doing that. But I want to share this, Pat. One of his clients is an 11-year-old kid who's actually, he might have just turned 12 who found him online. He follows me, you know, his mom like follows us as well. And it's 11 year old kid and he, he's a cyclist, right? So that's what this kid does. It's kind of extracurricular thing. Like he's part of a cycling team. And so my son has been training him. This kid doesn't really get much access or the kind of relationship with the father figure that he would want. And so his mom shared that, you know, it really, his, his, his world is just really lit up when he gets to spend time with Jordan, my son. And so he asked my son, Jordan, if he would do a hundred mile bike ride with him for his birthday. And it's like some fundraising thing also for some mm-hmm. organization that they're doing this for. And my son said, yes. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> it's cool. But for me, I'm just like a hundred miles. Like I, a mile is precedent for me. But he said, yes, my son is like really stocky and muscular. He's not a typical bike build, but he just rode 85 miles this past weekend in the training with this kid. He has that same thread of going above and beyond and loving more. And if we all could do that, man, we could make some really powerful change in the world. Dude, amen to that. Jeez. Cool. And every time I see your family, I see them on your Instagram stories and on Twitter. Like, they're just so beautiful. Anne is such an amazing person. And I had the pleasure of meeting her a couple of years ago at one of my events for just a brief moment. But I uh, hope we get to hang out more again soon. I want to finish off with one more question. I wanted to ask you about video. 
because you don't just do an audio podcast. You actually turn on the cameras when you're doing it. How has video been impact wise in terms of the content that you're creating? And is it something that you recommend for everybody? Well, um, first of all, to answer the last question, no, I definitely don't recommend it for everybody. You've got, to, it's not about comfort though, necessarily. It's about, for me, I'm a big fan of choosing a medium and then really working to dominate a space within that medium. So for me, it was podcasting and just audio podcasting was the big focus. And so for years, that's what I really focused on. And like I got onto Instagram super late. I got onto everything else late. So many people have invited me to Clubhouse. For me, I'm not one of those people where I'm just kind of getting onto the new thing. And I, I think I found about it like the first week or two. But it's just for me, I'm so focused on the podcast. And now my focus has shifted over. This is the beautiful part. When you really pick one thing and, and really get good at it and build an audience there, it makes the other platforms so much easier to grow once you shift the focus. And so now my focus has really opened up and shifted to YouTube in really big way. Like I've got some things in the works right now because I do have a level of comfortability with the space, but all the while it was maybe a couple of years into doing my podcast. We started re doing videos of them and I just throw them up on YouTube. I didn't think anything of it. It was no fo intentional focus on YouTube. Literally for years, we just put the video up when we put the podcast up. Some videos would get 50,000 views. Some would get 5,000. Some would get 200,000. Just a few, by the way. Most of them are just in a few thousand range, 10,000, maybe 15,000 average, which is pretty damn cool. But at the same time, the shift that's taking place for me is understanding that this medium, even though podcasting is gargantuan, it is huge. And the reason that I love it so much is that it's one of those things that people can do while they're doing other things. So you can go with people in their car, you can go with them on their walks, you can go with them in the gym, you can go with them cleaning the, the dishes. To sit and watch a video is a different domain. But some folks, by the way, just listen to some podcasts on YouTube or listen to things on YouTube. But for me, it's that thing where with YouTube, people are YouTubing things so often now. It's like the second biggest search engine, if I recall, or somewhere in that spectrum. People are YouTubing things to learn, to get content, to find out how to do things. And just the medium is just, it has a level of, it's so integrated in our culture as well. And so with YouTube, this is an important factor as well. It can't just be you putting your podcast on YouTube. Well, it can, but you're not going to see the same results because YouTube has its own language as well. Instagram has its own language, which is slightly different from Facebook, which is different from Twitter. YouTube is different. And understanding what are the things and looking at your metrics, how do you get retention? Where are people dropping off at? What's the best? Like, do you just get right to the content? Do you even introduce the person? Like all of these different things is a different domain. Because with the podcast, people are expecting to kind of sit with you and to be through a dynamic process. With YouTube, it's like people are YouTubing a thing oftentimes, especially if you're going to cold market. I'm loving it right now because I'm seeing some really amazing growth. And it also is another revenue stream as well that I had just neglected. What's the running joke that I need to stop joking about all the, the millions that we've left just on the table and actually given to other people, which is another, when Pat asked about the pro tip of going pro, you have to understand your value. That's another big thing because I've made so much money. I've made millions and millions and millions of dollars for so many other companies. And I don't have equity in those companies. I don't have da-da-da, but I was helping to build their brand, whereas I really should have been focusing on my own products, focusing on building 
know, other things with myself. Not to say that I can't support and help other organizations, but I'm coming into it with a different lens. And of course, there's a growth phase of that because you might need to build your brand along with maybe you're bringing on your first sponsor and you're just, you know, getting a few hundred dollars. But when you really click into understanding your value and the value that you're delivering, starting to look at how can I have some long-term revenue stream coming from these things. So with YouTube, I didn't even turn my ads on this entire time, all of these years, because I was just kind of like standing up for myself. Like, I don't want to have this incredible video helping people. And then they're putting up a, you know, a Viagra commercial in the middle of my video. And that's just, honestly, it's silly at this point because 99% of folks that go to YouTube, they're going to click on a video and they're going to be ads there. It's just the nature of the universe. And also there's going to be something that's more primed towards your content too. So you don't need to get too upset or offended, but also I was blocking my revenue stream and that I can use and then to help to create with education for, to really accomplish the mission that I want. And so that's an evolution in thinking where I'm trying to like stop people from going to McDonald's. Like got my sign up outside, like don't go in there unless you have to pee really bad, then you could go. But instead of understanding 84 million people every day in the United States get fast food. How about I don't just advise against going to McDonald's. How about I find a way to work with the organization itself and improve the quality of their foods since people are going there, help to eliminate some of the most toxic ingredients that might be contained in the cooking oil or whatever the case might be. And the crazy thing is once I made that shift in my thinking, these companies start reaching out to me. Nestle starts reaching out to me. You know, it's just all an evolution in thinking and also thinking long-term, where can I make the most impact and where can I also bring in revenue, a return funds to be able to fund the things that I want? That's a lot, but I hope all that makes sense. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I love that mindset shift and there's so much more power that we have that we just have to understand. And I love hearing examples like this because this, uh, this opens up our mind. Right. It's like Elon Musk. It's like, no, you can't go to Mars. Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, it's right. just like, and let, let's go to first principles to figure it out and go like how you're going up the chain to people are going to eat there anyway. Let's make it great for them instead of just kind of complaining about it or sort of holding up a sign. And yeah, still making an impact in that way. But you can go much bigger by going a little bit smarter right? To tie it all back to eating smarter. Sean, dude, thank you so much for coming on. This was just a fun, casual, really amazing chat to get into your brain a little bit and the way you do what you do. It just inspires me so, so much. Might we be able to get a sense of where you might want people to go to get the book and also check out your stuff? Of course. You can find the book anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We've got a campaign going with Target stores. A new one is about to kick off here. But when this is getting released, I don't know if the campaign is still going to be going but Target stores as well, which I'm really, really proud of because again, folks where I'm from, middle America, Missouri, Target stores, they can see this book, which with our campaign, it's like, it's got an end cap feature. It's a beautiful book, but also just getting these ideas into the hands of people who normally wouldn't get access to them. Very, very happy and proud of that. But also you can go to eatsmarterbook.com and we've got a mini course. There's 10 videos for when you get the book, when you get Eat Smarter, you get those 10 masterclass videos as well. And it's 10 foods that have the most peer-reviewed evidence for supporting your fat loss related hormones and enzymes. There's no food that's a magic bullet, but there are specific processes in the body that we've got so much peer-reviewed evidence now that we can support with certain nutrients and foods. 
so people can get that. And of course, where they're listening to this amazing show, they can find my show as well. It's called The Model Health Show. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you. Proud of you for everything. And I'm just so grateful to call you, friend. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Sean. Again, one of my favorite people and just such a down-to-earth, dope guy. He's just dope. I just could hang out with him all day long. And I know you could too because he's just that kind of guy. He's so cool. Family man, super nerd like me. He's into superheroes plus health and fitness. I mean, what's not to love? He's awesome. And he's shared with us a lot of the things that he's up to that maybe you haven't heard anywhere else. So hopefully that's the case. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check him out, The Model Health Show and all the links. Also check out Eat Smarter, a follow-up to Sleep Smarter. So any guesses on what the third book's gonna be? We'll see. We shall see. Anyway, thank you so much for listening in today. Check out Sean everywhere. He's on Instagram at Model Health. Sean Stevenson, the Model Health Show podcast. And you might be able to find his book at Target too. And if you do, take a picture. Tag me in it, at Pat Flynn. Big orange book with an avocado in the middle. I appreciate you for listening in. Thank you. Keep rocking it. You're awesome. Hit subscribe if you haven't already. And I'll see you next week. We have a great episode and cannot wait to serve you then. Until then, take care. Peace out. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.